Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again I bring you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in it, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of my best friends in the whole wide world, Jonah Falco of the band Career Suicide, of uh, Board of Education, of... Uh, uh, Johnny New York and the Stink Bombs, and uh, oh, fucked up too. He is a uh, one of my one of my close buds, and so on. I will go into this in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can send me an email. You can also head over to various forms of social media and add me at Left for Damien. You can also go to Facebook.com and you can like the Turn Out a Punk page and send a message there. It's run by my brother Tristan Abraham, a good good friend. And uh, a, a brother, a literal brother of mine too, but he is also uh, someone that has really helped out this podcast in the last few weeks. So I owe you a big thank you, Tristan. And he's still running that Facebook page. So you can send him a message. He'll get the message to me. If you don't use Facebook and you want to see some of the cool stuff that we post up on there, you go to turnoutapunk.tumblr.com. And if you want to support the show and use iTunes, go to iTunes. Subscribe to this, write a review, rate it, tell your friends. If you're listening to this on some other method and you want to find a better method, we're on Spotify, we're on uh, Audio Boom, and we're, uh, you know, and on the old iTunes. So those are the ways you can hear it. Uh, also, finally, finally, this week on Wednesday, the Tournament of Death. Bloodlust documentary that I made with uh, for Vice is coming out finally. You can check it out on Vice.com. I know there's been a couple of false starts, but now it's coming out. So that's this coming Wednesday. Also, if you are listening to this, well, by the time you hear it, it's already happened. I just did uh, Sound on Sound Music Festival. You can probably hear Bill Stevenson's uh, after party happening next door. It's a little loud. It's a little a little late at night, but uh, you know he's supposed to be a guest theoretically tomorrow on my live podcast. So if he didn't do that, then this is kind of a dick move. But if he does do that, I'm totally cool with you partying all night, Bill. No, I'm just kidding. Either way. Uh, but And also, if you're like, ah, I missed out on Damien live in Austin, Texas at Sound on Sound. Where can I see him uh, You know, do these live podcasts? Well, you can go over to DamienAbraham.com and, which is the email address having website that I talked about earlier. But there was a tab on there called Taupe Live or Tour Taupe Live. Click on that and you will see that I have tour dates coming up across the great land of America. Um, you know, <laughs> after the election, it'll be an interesting tour. Uh, but that is going to be on December 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th. I'm going to be playing in uh, the Great Scott in Alston, Massachusetts. I'm going to be playing in uh, Black Cat on Tuesday in Washington, D.C., on the Wednesday at Johnny Brenda's in Philadelphia, PA, and then finally on the Thursday in Brooklyn, New York. And you can go there, buy tickets, you can RSVP. You can also check out uh, a big picture of all the records I have in the background. Not all the records, but a lot of records. I'm just looking at it now. It's a... I've got to update that. There's more records I can put in there. Anyway, on to an amazing day of the show. This is a huge show. It is episode 104. And for those of you who missed last year's anniversary show, I've decided that every anniversary I'm going to try and get a member of Fucked Up. I've kind of exhausted the easy members to get though now, so I think from now on it might be a little more, a little more difficult to get some of these people on. No, I'm just kidding. There's going to be a couple more. There's going to be one that's going to be difficult to get on 
but we're going to save that for year number six. So we got some time. Uh, but anyway, yeah, this is a great conversation with a guy that I have spent more time with than just about anyone else on the planet, Jonah Falco. He is, uh, in addition to being an incredible, incredible drummer, he's an unbelievable guitar player, and he is also, beyond all of that, one of the sweetest human beings I've ever met. And that's not just me saying it. You can ask anybody and anybody that knows that dude will be like, he is a sweet, sweet human being. And, uh, yeah. So like, you know, the opportunity came up to have Jonah on. I've been wanting to have Jonah on for a long time. I decided, no, no, I'll save it. Wait, wait for the second anniversary. I did. And, uh, yeah, you get a two hour show. We did one hour. Um, we decided, no, that's not enough for these people. They need to hear more. So then Jonah and I recorded a second part of the conversation a couple days later in England. So you get, you know, this is like a, 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 a two country spanning podcast, two continent spanning podcast, uh, that encompasses over two hours of conversation between myself and, and Jonah. So this is a long one. I'm not going to take up any more of your time with this BS, but I do have some notes. Number one, uh, Mark Schubert, shows up. So look for a cameo by Wasted Times, Mark Schubert, your legendary, legendary Virginia hardcore linchpin, Virginia Beach uh, hardcore linchpin. And uh, he is, uh, you know, runs Beach Impediment Records and uh, put out the new Megas LP. He's put out like a ton of killer stuff. So yeah, and he makes a cameo and he's going to be a future guest. So you get that. And also uh, we're kind of rushed towards the first half of this thing and that's because I was running to the studio with Career Suicide to record vocals on their new single we talked about that in part two you'll hear all that I'm sure there's other notes that I'm forgetting now some mistakes that I gotta correct and the like but I'm gonna I'm just gonna let you listen now because this is a good one so everyone please sit back and relax the two year anniversary show featuring Jonah Falco on Turned Out of Punk Don't worry, Jonah. You got your levels set. You're, this isn't this isn't your realm. This is my realm, buddy. This is, this is your world. I'm so used to you controlling my audio destiny, and now oh, I shit. control yours. Oh. I'll be like, this is gonna be one of those moments where I'm like, my voice really sounds like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, your voice sounds cool. You've got a cool sounding voice. People, okay. people have always said that uh, you are the, uh, you know, the low key uh, most talented member of this band. <laughs> You know, myself included. I've, I've definitely oh, very much you. held thank that you. opinion for a long time now. Um, sorry, that's the tea bag dropping out of my tea. That's how civilized we're doing this this morning. <laughs> exactly. This is like a nice, like a little Monday morning. We got tea. There's like soft lighting. Well, you have the most English cottage feeling house <laughs> in all of Toronto. So uh, yeah, we very beautiful uh, and well, nice. Well, thank you very much. Uh, no, no, for the you listeners out there, uh, as you know, Damien can attest, being in Fucked Up, the raging and psychedelic punk band, uh, we really live the image. So, yes, there, you know, there is a bit of a cottage vibe, but it's also in this, like, really horrible field. There's, like, lots of precarious stuff around here. Yeah, it's, it's like that house in um, uh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, it's like little mini Corover, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, no, thank you so much for having me over to do this, buddy. My pleasure. You have such a cool podcast. I'm really psyched to be on it. Thank you. Well, I'm kind of thinking now every year I'm going to try and interview a member of the band oh, until yeah. ultimately I get to Mike and he refuses to do it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you Okay. I have a feeling that in a year from now or in four years, however, however, however many members you have left, I'm under the impression that like by the time you get to Mike, he'll be ready. 
to do it, you think? Yeah, so, and you'll have notes, and it'll be, like, probably the funniest thing ever, because I think there was a time long ago where weren't you going to interview Mike, or Mike was going to interview you for a zine? For, like, a fucked up related... He did. He did. He interviewed all of us for Rock and Roll. No, not the fake one. Well, that was a real interview. None of us knew it was fake. No, that's exactly. But uh, wait a minute. Are we allowed to admit uh, in public that that was a staged the statute, The statute of limitations is okay. well up it's on It's expired. That. But in the Max Rock and Roll, for people who don't know, yeah. there was this interview. Yes. And uh, we were interviewed by a, a gentleman by the name of David Iliad. No, wait a minute. It was for Heart Attack. No, it was for Max Rock and Roll. Maximum is the one that oh. Mike just wrote, interviewed himself. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. That's right. With a fake, as a fake person. Yeah. Sorry, you're right. Heart Attack was the one where we got interviewed by David Iliad. <laughs> yeah, actually, I fell for that interview, Hook, Line, and Sinker, which I'm, I uh, was my usual, my usual sort of like state of existence in communicating is uh, could be summed up by the word lag. I like take a long time to get back to people because I'm just a bit disorganized, and I was really like struggling to you know, psychologically find the time to answer those questions. And Mike kept very gently nudging me like, Hey, have you gotten back to David? Hey, have you gotten back to so-and-so? And And I was like, Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I just wrote the worst answers to these otherwise like really generous questions that everybody else seemed to take in stride and have really intelligent answers for. But I just would like shot off the most inane. I gotta go back and read that. Oh man. It's terrible. It's just, I don't, I haven't read it since I read it, but I remember looking at like your answers even and Sandy and Josh's answers, and just thinking like, I've wasted this opportunity, <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns into this big publicity stunt. Yeah, well, that's the thing is Mike. Mike is definitely when he wants to be, as only us can attest to, one of the most verbose people in the world, he, and will not shut up sometimes. <laughs> uh, and then other times he is shut off to the world. He is tight-lipped. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the side most people see. Well, it's funny, you know, be, being in being a kind of public figure. How do you how do you navigate being really open and really forward and like letting yourself out? Like you you guys are kind of the yin and yang in that sense because mm-hmm. you're like the outward and um, accommodating and welcoming presence that sort of like breaks down the barrier of the band being so mysterious. But it, Mike is like, well, you know, if I do that, then I kind of lose all the foothold that I've had creating this world right yeah, and so it's yeah. like it must be must be difficult to try and let go of that yep no he will he will be the last one i think yeah this thing well that's but good we're not here to talk about mike jonah let's get back to me we're here to talk about you we're yeah let's do this so i'm going to start this off the way i start them all off all right which is how'd you get in punk remember the first time you ever came across <laughs> the genre yeah, uh, I think the first time I ever came across the genre was maybe like 12 or 13 years old. Mm-hmm. I believe your brother was in the room, actually, Tristan. Uh, and he had just brought a Green Day CD into school or something like that. And somebody said, is that one of those bands that has a fake English accent and just screams about nothing? And uh, your brother... <laughs> said like no it's this new green day bootleg i just got it on young street or something and it's amazing and he put it on and that was the first time i i think i remember like hearing punk on purpose yeah like or no not on purpose like the word had been in my mind but that was like this weird thing actually i haven't thought of it until now that green day was kind of the first landing party and a member of your family which is very like fitting after that uh my first real like I got into, did you like? I guess like, had you heard 
Like, were you listening to CFNY, or did you, like, check out any of that stuff by I, that point? Nirvana? I, yeah. That would have kind of happened, right? Well, yeah. When I was, yeah, I was, like, listening to You're the young. radio. I'm, I'm young. I was listening to the radio, and I knew about Nirvana, and I think the first, the first like, rock tape I ever got was Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger. Okay. And I got really into grunge. Mm-hmm. I had, like, mainstream grunge, like Nirvana, uh, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails, and my imagination was kind of limited, so mud honey, so like a little bit, but like sort of typical taste for the like mid late ninety or like mid nineties, I guess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then I I knew I knew about punk, and I I didn't really experience it until like uh, I went on a trip with a school trip to Ottawa, and I remember. It's a much better story than hearing your brother say that he bought a Green Day CD. My first, <laughs> this is my first thing. Well, I remember that. Do you remember that CD store though? That was beside HMV. That yeah, had the, totally. The crazy bootleg. Yeah, that it was. It was like. Sorry, that's the train. No, that's awesome. Mm. Now it's the adds the urban reality. Yeah, to exactly. The, uh, it's fucking stark in here. <laughs> no, it's like no. a single light bulb swinging back and forth. <laughs> No. <laughs> Not at all. It offsets everything we said, though, in the beginning. Now you're giving a totally different description yeah. of what's actually going on. We're lit by a beautiful skylight. <laughs> There's hanging plants. Okay. <laughs> uh, that, that's, see, like, that's the thing about getting into music then, too, which was great, is that there were all these... I mean, you can still find a bootleg, but all these funny pockets of, like, what the hell is in here and, like, why... Like, you would buy the wrong thing. Yeah. You could get introduced to the most popular band in the world the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I... Uh, you know, and I think that that store on Young Street, though, was, you know, like kind of like the perfect symbol of the era where like music was still so hard to get that you could sell bootlegged live recordings of dubious quality at a premium yeah. because there was the only way you'd hear it. Yeah. Uh, okay, to finish the story, I was 12. We went to yeah. Ottawa. I yeah. went to the Rideau Center. I bought Nevermind the Bollocks on cassette, which I still have. And then. And I listened to it, and it like blew my mind. And I bought orange hair dye in a can from the It store, and a chain necklace, and <laughs> spray painted my head orange, and came home. I would believe I was dropped off. Somehow from this school trip, I ended up getting dropped off at my Italian grandparents' house with orange hair and like a chain necklace. <laughs> And they were just mortified. And the look of disappointment and horror on their faces. I mean, these are people, bless them, but. You know, they didn't want to see that. And I was, I was just like, it'll wash out, it'll wash out, it'll wash out. And they're like, go wash it out right now. I think that's something that definitely shapes your punk experience is this, like, kind of very conservative yeah. as far as, uh, as far as uh, looks, punk looks, yeah. looks yeah. definitely. And, a, and a aesthetics generally associated with punk. Yeah. Foreboding kind of yeah. family. I, I never got the, I, 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 ex, I experimented to a certain extent. But you know, I actually, when I was like really young, I had spiky hair, and I thought that was crazy. And yeah. then, like you know, in my punk phase, there was most of my friends weren't the kind of like extreme punk punk people with with like Liberty Spikes and and like, like I knew those I knew people like that, but it just sort of it didn't stick with me. And everybody I knew kind of dressed more like a hardcore or yeah. whatever, or like you know, just like ra- ratty clothes, skate punk stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. And then for me, I've always had to have this funny duality where. My musical taste and like the p- political taste. It's not, I don't come from like a hugely conservative family. It's like solid working class family. But like uh, everybody's just really calm and like not impressed by <laughs> extreme behaviors. So I just sort of always had to, to at least once a week just tone it down. Yeah, like I would say conservative, not politically, yeah. but conservative. Um, 
as far as mores. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember my my uncle who was uh, in no ways uh, like he was totally down. He's like, yeah, you like you like punk, you like those crazy freaks. Oh, yeah, that's cool, man. Why don't you like shave your head or something? And uh, I had him buy. I asked for like a copy of. Uh, any black flag record for for Christmas, and he's <laughs> of course like you could do that if you were in the know. But he went through some like hooker crook back alley. He's like, I know a guy that can like find things. <laughs> he gave me a copy of Everything Went Black, and he handed it to me, and he's like, Hey, just so you know, I, I don't look at the song titles on here. These guys are fucking crazy. These people are fucked up. And I was like, Oh yeah, and he's like. I know you like it, but just so you know, I mean, it's punk, so it's screwed up in the head, but it's for you. And I was just like, okay. And so, I mean... Was that a CD or a... It was a, it was a CD. Yeah. I wish that he... I'm making, for those of you listening, I'm making a gesture like it was a vinyl, a piece of vinyl, but... That's so cool, though. Like, like That's like a great jumping off point for Black Flag. It's yeah. Like, you know, I had to go the other way. I had uh, to get into it backwards. Well, my, no, I, I would say that the first Black Flag song I heard was In My Head. Okay. Our first record I heard was in my head, and then the, like. Where'd you hear that? Uh, I had a CD of it, I guess oh. from like I there was a there was a used CD store in Bloor West Village, and I don't remember what it was called. But Erotica? I, no, it was like at Bloor and Runnymede. Oh, Bloor! Wow. Okay. And I don't, I don't know if I knew that. I had some friends out there, and I on the same day I bought a used copy of In My Head on CD and Ramones Acid Eaters, and and that same day I got a Black Flag polo shirt but like the, the roach spray okay yep, yeah 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 and but i was like ah, oh, nobody will know it's the same and i went around, I, I had only heard in my head but i knew that black flag had a song called tv party yeah and i kept telling my friends i was really into black flag and they were like well what's your favorite black flag song and they these are people who didn't know i was like uh tv party because so they didn't definitely didn't like anything yeah in my head then i was yeah. just like what is the big deal with this fucking band they're terrible <laughs> And uh, and they're like, you like a band called that has a song called Tea Party. Everybody was just like so punishing about it. But yeah, so that was that was like around this. That was post Sex Pistols, like finding anything. And so for the longest time, the only Ramones record I'd heard was Acid Eaters. Well, that gives you that's that's why yesterday we were, you were demanding to hear some like Too Tough to Die, yeah. uh, and Subterranean Jungle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess like. Where did you go though immediately after that Sex Pistols tape? You come home, you wash out that hair dye, you take that chain necklace off. From uh, from there, I was I understood that there was so like almost instantly with any music, but especially with punk, I was I was obsessed with the fact that I only knew a little bit about it, and I knew that people were punk. So there were kids at school who were into punk, and I was just this kind of like amorphous, sort of awkward person, and. You know, I was like, uh, I could talk to somebody about like Soundgarden and Nirvana to the, the smallest extent. And then, but I knew that there was this, there were like 10 or 15 people who were punks. And I was like, yeah. I, I got to like know these people. And I had this one tape. And from there, I was like, I know, if this exists, something else exists. I got to find it. And so I started getting into like uh, pop punk, like 90s pop punk. Mm. So that, that was like the... The first way forward, and uh, you know, no effects, uh, you, lag wagon, that kind of stuff. Had you been playing yet? I'd never played. I, I like. I'd never played an instrument really, other than At like, all? other than like trumpet and, and piano, piano, right? But I'd never played a guitar. Because you come from like a very musical family. Like both your parents are musicians. Yeah, both my parents are musicians, and uh, I have like musical 
intuition and like I could I could I can play the tr- I could and then I could play the trumpet and I think I was in like the choir or something. Did you know you could play guitar? Or did you think you could or no? I was there like no desire to. Th- like, there was a gu- there was a guitar at home and the first song I learned to play on guitar was about a girl by yeah. Nirvana because it's like solid two chord song. It's like a good <laughs> introduction to to like what you should be doing in punk too. Did you you must have had to self teach teach yourself? Yeah, I never took a lesson and uh, and on. For drums, that was like pretty self-taught too. I just yeah, uh, we'll get to that, John. Oh, we'll we're, get to we're that. Jumping ahead, we're, we're going to yeah. talk about your uh, on-stage debut. Yeah. Oh, right. Big big debut. Well, I I could like sort of play guitar, and I I learned how to do it sort of by myself on this acoustic on some acoustic guitar at home, mm-hmm. uh, just from trying to play along with whatever CDs and stuff. After pop punk, I. There was a there was a crucial store in Toronto that you and I both love called Full Blast Records, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is basically responsible for sending me on any pathway towards like the more finessed side of like knowing about punk music. Had you been to any shows? My first, mm, I saw the Vandals opening for No Doubt. Okay. In like, that was sort of like even. And didn't Siv play that too? Yeah, Siv too. Yeah. Did you see Siv? Were you there I did see now? Siv. Yeah, it was a great. Did that was, register with you at that point, or no? I think I was just like I didn't know what I was seeing, and I got actually really into the Vandals after yeah, that. Yeah, uh, my timeline they're is a lot like, more like they're like sort of. It's almost like ska punk in the sense that it's very like circusy punk. Yeah, it's like totally funny. Yeah, like it's and, very welcoming when you're a younger person. And, yeah, and they're like yeah, they're super engaging. Yeah, the and, lyrics are very decipherable. You can and they're also like. They seem like they're really punk. They have like they had that live fast diarrhea thing. They there's like a barfing mohawk guy <laughs> eating dog shit or whatever. I was like, oh, this is unbelievable. Like, <laughs> wow, this is like truly the pinnacle. But <laughs> well, they did put a rat in a blender. The famous oh, story, right? God, what? Isn't that a famous story? They wasn't that Frank discussion who hit nope. him. No, he just beat a rat to death on stage with a hammer. Oh yeah, and then also he covered the whole stage one time in dead animals that he dug up from a pet cemetery. Uh, at the Gilman. That's Goodbye. a got banned from the Gilman. That's a, if you're going to get banned from the Gilman... It's a bold move. You might as well... As a performer, like, there's nothing you can do that's quite as intense as covering a stage in dead animals. Like, it's beyond performance. You yeah. really have to, like, believe in yourself. I've done, like, some extreme stuff on stage, and people always come up and say, like, oh, you do some crazy stuff on stage. Yeah. There's, like, lines that I do not cross. And, uh, you know, like, dealing in dead animals or <laughs> killing animals... I would be like, yeah. Not, not into it. I don't know. I mean, I'm not into it either. There's like a certain kind of, you know, showbiz panache. There's a video of it. Oh, God. It's a research. You know that research pranks video? Yeah. There's a uh, segment about that with Frank Discussion interviewed. I mean, the, the world is probably like a little bit more pleasurable, not covered in <laughs> animal corpses. So, but I appreciate this. You know, I'm thinking about like, you know, when you watch those old Target videos and the performance art is like a guy welding things together. Or uh, that band Eel that has, yeah. has a uh, like a power sander on stage and they send sparks. Everywhere. I mean, it's like it's a good gesture and it's a performative gesture. But I, I'm actually kind of like shook hearing what this dead animal sings. Is I'm just imagining how dedicated you have to be to what you were about to it, do to stage that stunt. It's it, like it it beyond an action. And it got written up in like the National Enquirer or the National Examiner, like one of those type magazines. Yeah. It's like this crazy punk band covers the stage and dead animal corpses. <laughs> and it's, they were just, they are the most punk band of all time. See, but that's the kind of thing that when you're, when I was young, that's what I wanted 
to experience and see probably yeah. because I, I had like a totally calm upbringing and uh, you know I was like there's this whole world where people like I, I was sort of I, stunned when I saw people that to me looked really extreme and seemed chaotic and, and had no no kind of stability in their personality or in their, I was just like how do you even go to sleep at night I just want to get to the point where I can be that this is going to sound cheesy, but kind of like that free. Mm-hmm. I always felt that I, you know, there were so many things that I had to abide by. And some people just it looked like they had just like rolled out of a garbage can, but they were still alive and they still knew a ton about music and they knew where things were happening. Everybody was so capable in that world, despite having this, you know, otherwise crappy facade. But I, I thought that that was really appealing. And so... But instead of chasing the image, I wanted to chase the music. And I thought that the way to be like that and the way to sort of feel free was to just know a lot about one thing Mm -hmm. or know a lot about something. And it kind of came in the form of music because as soon as... And it's also, you know, when you're trying to form an identity when you're a young person, um, you know, music is is a pretty common one. But it gives you an incredible amount of confidence to know something about the world that mm-hmm. somebody else doesn't know something about because you just become, it, it lends a certain capability, I felt, to be able to talk about Discharge in the record store or or to talk about Civ or to, to, to know what some insignia meant or some symbol meant. And at that time too, which is, you know, a lot of the people on your podcast are a lot older than me and have like lived through the, the birth of this place when there's just, you really have to make your own way. For me, and to a certain extent you, we're living in this funny past tense version of of the most of the of of our our chosen like interest, or how to how to put this better, you know, all the artifacts of punk having happened were just starting to fade away mm-hmm. when you and I were getting into it, and to me, I could find these little clues as to what st- music used to be like or what punk culture or underground culture used to be like and I just developed this really weird past tense relationship with punk where I could I could find a little thing you could find a used record you could find an old out of date patch or you could find a store that still sold spiky belts but it was just like it was like a bonded shop it wasn't it was just around the time because I think that like your ascent mine was a you know a year or two earlier than you yeah um because I'm a year or two older than you Mm. um but I think uh, the uh, was kind of like that was like the that was punk's complete development like yeah. that's where it like went through its like you know whole stage of going back underground yeah. and then coming up again yeah you know, first through Nirvana and then ultimately through through Green Day yeah well that's the amazing thing is to to sort of because I was I felt that I was aware that punk existed as though it it had always existed and you just take for granted that something was there and I had no idea that there were these arcs. Mm-hmm. I just knew that there was old bands and new bands mm-hmm. and they were all the same and and actually it's it's weird having got into this kind of music in, in a trough in a way because it was post grunge and it was kind of the tail end of the, the skate punk, pop punk, that record thing, Green Day, Offspring, offspring yeah. being really huge, that was always in my peripheral vision. When I when I was when I was into grunge, I looked like such a moron. Actually, I think punk probably saved my my sense of like sense of self image. I used to wear like uh, 
polyester paisley 70s shirts and I had long bleach blonde hair and I wore a mushroom necklace, like a magic mushroom necklace <laughs> and, uh, and like pleated khaki old man pants yeah. and like two big army boots. It was like, like a complete idiot. Did you fuck with drugs in high school at all? Not really. Yeah. I like tried, I like smoked weed and did hash and, but I never. It was an aesthetic thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, everybody I, I was like, do you, do you, do you do mushrooms? I was like, yeah, <laughs> I got the necklace. Don't I? Like it was a total poser. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so I had like the really typical high school drug experience. I wasn't. I was like not adventurous. In yeah. Any way. I was just like, just I'm gonna take this. Can I get your standard package of like you know youth experience? But then, yeah. At the same time, I was looking at all this other shit happen. That was like the nice thing to be balanced, like have this really sort of lame high school, but then just disappear into this other world and see all this carnage and and start to like understand the boundaries and limits of what you want to do. And then you go back to these sort of typical basic teetotal, cultural teetotalers and you're like, I know exactly where I can like take it, take, or not take, but like I understand where I can yeah. ride in the, in the various worlds. But it's funny because you like, yeah, I think you took a very similar path than I did where you kind of opt out of a lot of the high school social experience because you're yeah. going to shows. Yeah. And you're involved in this other stuff. Like, I think you were a little more involved in like some. You, had, you I was like, I was I, way more of an outcast as far as no one liked me in school. Yeah. But I think the thing that I thought was funny was like m there was a group of kids. I'm not going to say my brother was one of them, but maybe. Oh, no, sure, was, he was. But they got down with like the drugs and uh, got. And that, right. Chose that. <laughs> I didn't path. mean to just like <laughs> dime out your brother. Oh, yeah, of course he was. <laughs> no, but he like he went down like another path. But you kind of I guess got a lot more into just like music stuff. Well, yeah, that was the, I guess, coming from a musical family as well, it was easy to think about music first. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's what I, that's why I, I am thinking now, even about that time, like, being at this weird trough in the cultural, like, shift, because, like, punk couldn't have gotten much bigger and still kind of be underground. It was part of, like, underground mainstream culture. And then it went through this big trough, and by the time I was in bands or something, the, the sort of snowball started building mm -hmm. again and now we're at this point where punk is really pervasive mm -hmm. and not only in music culture or you know whatever arts culture but you know uh corporations have distressed fonts and yeah, sort of yeah. other things which otherwise might have looked punk 15 years ago or 20 years ago um but yeah focusing on music was kind of the, the most important thing dave dave reeser uh was one of these kids in school that was punk. Dave Reeser was a guy that I went to high school with who unfortunately uh, died in a in a train accident. Mm -hmm. um, he was getting out of... I, I thought he was like really cool and seemed to have this sort of freewheeling air about him and like new stuff and, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk. And he gave me this bag of... He's like, I'm getting out of punk. It sucks. I'm getting into hip-hop now. <laughs> that was the thing. Yeah, that was the thing. You get out of punk, rave you get or into hip-hop. Hip rave or hip-hop. Yeah, I think it was like... Everybody went rave and hip-hop. And then the sort of uh, six people or whatever stayed punk. But he gave me this bag of CDs. And, and it was... Uh, it was it was literally like inheriting another person's garbage. And that's been kind of like that was like the relationship to punk I think I had for a long time, where I was just like digging through the garbage of the world to find these sort of like slightly damaged but interesting things. It's amazing because I know you you don't get a chance to check out too many of these episodes, but Walter was on yeah and tells this story. But when he got into punk, he showed up at his school, and this kid's like, "Hey, I'm getting out of 
uh, Pong. <laughs> you want these records? Yeah. You give them a box of seven. It's just like an urban waste test press. Oh my god! It's like like the most fire box, like Meyer Threat records, like all this crazy ass shit. And uh, it's like you got given like I got given like the queers <laughs> and like you know assorted jelly beans. And I'm like, oh my god, this is blowing my mind. Uh, uh, oh, I like stuff like that. But that yeah, again, it was just like it was about the chase. It was always yeah, about the chase. Absolutely. And like you know, you would have your years later in life of finding not the urban waste. Test press, but, no, but like, very few of us have ever found that. No, I think, no. but like you know, the equivalent of other rare records and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But it wouldn't be as easy for you for us because, but I well, think that's the time, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing that's too. That's the equivalent. If, like that was the dumping point at the time for him. Yeah, you have to. I mean, it's sort of about partly about who you're friends with. If if your friends are really sort of turned on, then they'll they'll have the best records. You know, somebody could have handed me a stack of, um, you know, like uh, AMRAP records. And I could have had a closer connection to hardcore, yeah. or somebody could have handed me a bunch of Guided by Voices records or something. Yeah, no, I think I think though that like, if you were say twenty years earlier and in Queens, New York, <laughs> as opposed to Toronto, Ontario, yeah. someone would have handed you that yeah. box of seven yeah, inches exactly. as the equivalent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, that was like you know the assorted jelly beans, and that was the kind of the. The, the sound of the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, the, the, it's funny that like you talk like the gradation of taste too. It was like okay, you get into the most obvious thing, and then you you um, saturate yourself with whatever's around, mm-hmm. and then you start to sort of decide what you actually like. Yeah, and that's sort of always the way you get into a different kind of music. Anyway, you yeah. sort of like blanket accept everything. But so, yeah, go ahead. No, no. So from that no doubt vandal Civ show. <laughs> Where did you go? What was your first local show? My first local show was probably maybe an opera house, like a snow jam, pop okay. punk kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. That's went, kind of a local. That doesn't quite count, you know. No, that counts. Like there, I, were, there were definitely like local bands on it. That would be your first probably exposure to local. Yeah, music but I'm culture, trying to think of like the first small scale, like punk show, punk show I went to actually. And I'm trying to kind of coming up blank. It's, Any of those Elmo shows? Oh yeah, Elmo. I went to see. Uh, what did I see? I saw like Ska Ska Oi at the Elmo combo <laughs> yeah. a lot. And that's the other thing is is it's amazing how little a person can know better, you know. And I'm just like, yeah, okay. What's what's the punk scene like? There's ska, and apparently there's also ska, and there's also oi. So I'm like, I guess I should be like, maybe I should wear some suspenders. So I got into like kind of like, I was like, I think I'm a, like, I think I'm a skinhead now, and I had a, a, like a sharp patch, and everybody was like, what the, and like a newsy hat, and and like I had these ridiculous boots again, too big. I remember I stole a pair of, I stole a pair of combat boots. They were like sitting. I walk. I like did a stakeout on this pair of combat <laughs> They were just always beside this locker at school, and I was like, "Oh, those those are amazing! Those are the perfect boots! Like I can't afford I can't afford my own boots. I really want those." I'm like, "If they're there tomorrow, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll take them." And they were there, and I was like, oh, "It's just stealing! I, I don't want to like. What if this is like the janitor's boots or whatever?" And then I wa- I like cased out these boots like every day for a month, <laughs> and they were always there until finally I like. Looked over both shoulders, stayed a little late after school, and like grabbed them and went home. And they were 
so big. They were like cripplingly <laughs> large. My feet were already crippled from like the foot binding behavior of Converse All Stars. Uh, no, anyway, and <laughs> yeah, and and then uh, I had these combat boots on. They were like they were for Andre the fucking Giant, and I was like. Like dragging these my steel-toed feet around, like tripping in pleated khakis from Goodwill, a fucking like, and, and I'm I'm a short, fat teenager at this point, and probably like, you know, just the most eggy, awkward man covered in, covered in zits and peach fuzz, and uh, going to these shows and seeing like Spinecracker and yeah. Jersey, and then uh, so it was like a, it was a fairly uh, profane existence in those early days of just sort of. Yeah. No pun intended, literally, because yeah, literally none intended. you weren't seeing any profanity. No, I was not. Uh, and then I... Like, had you gone to, like, Who's Emma? Well, like... my first time at Who's Emma was, like, shortly thereafter. So I had this sort of, like, pop-punk world, and I guess I went to the cathedral a bunch of times, and I saw, like, the the stiffs, and uh, what you, you're a girl, and you suck. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, all the local... Scenes, all the like local pop punky kind of bands at the time. I would say that's all of them. <laughs> no, no, like we're a, definitely not. I'm yeah. trying to like, I'm struggling no, to but, remember. But I think also, you know what? I think the Zach Felberg trio played that show at the nice. cathedral, which was big. My good friend Zach Felberg. <laughs> Zach Felberg is one of his only few shows. It's amazing how central some of these people have like become in your life. Like I, I, you are like you're super tight with Zach, but like Zach, I bounced off Zach's world. Then I was just like, Oh, I'll probably never see this person again. And then, you know, 20 years later, but, uh, I, it was, I had to play trumpet in the school band or whatever at, uh, at some like Christmas carol service. And after that, uh, our, our, our mutual acquaintance, Jonathan loft, uh, said, Hey, uh, do you want to come see a hardcore show? And I was like, oh, hard, like the only hardcore I'd seen was Straight Faced or, you know, I didn't they really... They played that Snow Jam. Yeah. So you read that one with No Fun at All. No Fun at All, Straight Pride Face, Ball. Pride Bowl. And That's then, a sick one. That yeah. Was good but one. I was, it was lost on me too because I remember just like saying like, I'm going to go in the pit and then just getting crushed and mm-hmm. losing a shoe. Did I, Ignite play that one too? I think Ignite was on the flyer for sure, but I, I don't yeah, remember anything play. about it. Play. AFI maybe? Mm, I don't know. I still have the flyer somewhere. Oh, it's a wicked flyer. Yeah, you have a pretty good archive. Of yeah. sort of this sort of stuff. I lent them to Rick Smith, and I, he says he gave them back, but I can't remember. <sighs> but yeah, there was another one. There was uh, whatever. The, it was like one of those hardcore bands, uh, kind of like weird mainstream metallic hardcore band oh was know. it Misconduct yeah Misconduct maybe that's a Swedish band right yeah yeah anyway and maybe Sick of it would you have seen Sick of no it? I never saw Sick of it I was dying to see Sick of it all I was I loved Sick of it all there was like I had this kid in Cam Davison gave me a mixtape that had live from a wor- in a world full of hate on one side and avail some live avail record on the other side. I think I made him that tape. Really? Yeah, because those are definitely my CDs. <laughs> well, I listened to that like till it exploded. <laughs> I thought that live Sick of It All set was like the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, and I, I sort of started getting into like New York hardcore, which was also like a really pervasive thing at the time. Like, yeah. Those were the bands that lasted from like over like two or three turnover of hardcore and still were kind of doing their own thing and mm-hmm. they kept touring up here it was like a stop and so you were like okay yeah, I like Sick of It All I like Murphy's Law but uh, yeah he Jonathan invited me to a hardcore show and it was Darkest Hour at Who's Emma oh yeah yeah and that was technically my and first submission hold yeah yes yeah did they play that show 
I remember, I feel like Darkest World played with Submission Hold later, but maybe that was the show that... You know what? I did go to some shows at... Oh, I don't know. But I think you might have played that show. No, that was Board of Education. Yeah, with Board of Education. Terrible man. So I guess my timeline is wrong, so... It's the Darkest Hour was the first... It was like... Maybe it was Darkest Hour before, or like a different show. Something. And... Yeah, I went to... It was like... I hadn't been to Kensington Market, like, not in daylight hours to, like, buy a chicken or something with my <laughs> my parents at that point. And I was like, oh, my God, what is this place? And it's a different place after dark at that point, too. Well, yeah. And, and, and then Who's Emma? I had never been in a place yeah. like Who's Emma, which is now – I take for granted that something like that exists. And everybody, I think, perhaps takes for granted that yeah. a place like Who's Emma exists in their yeah. town, especially in the punk scene with, like, you know, a sort of radical open space, safe space, etc. And I went down and I – you know, I just watched this band, which I thought was pretty boring. But I was like, oh, hey, I guess I'm like, I'm like, I think I go to hardcore shows now. And that same week, I saw Madball and H2O at the Elma Combo, and then or Madball at the Elma Combo, and and I tried to go see Twenty Five to Life and H2O also at the Elma Combo, but some somebody didn't show up. But then, like you know, I had like my world rocked. Uh, I went to this one Who's Emma show, and I was like, okay, I've I found. I've been I've stumbled upon this other level. So I, I understood what the world was. I was like the world is the like the cathedral, the Elma Combo, um or like the big bop, blah blah blah, the Elma Combo, um and you know, maybe the Blur JCC mm-hmm. and uh something else. And then there was this whole like tiny scene. The Who's Emma thing was like really small scale and everybody was a real diehard and understood like deeply, deeply what was going on. Had you met Mike at this point? And- I'd never met Mike. I don't don't think I met Mike. I may have met him like shortly thereafter. Yeah. And that seeing Madball though I'm trying to remember when I met Mike. Alright, it'll come back to me. Okay. Seeing Madball was like explosive and crazy and I was yeah. it was like it was like a weird love at first sight moment with what was happening because uh, and it's a, it's strange because that's not really what, you know, Madball is like not where the focus of my taste went at all, but for a like for having gone from just pop punk and sort of understanding hardcore as this like a slightly more aggressive version of pop punk, mm-hmm. the shift to see what people were doing and to see the way the music was being played and by whom the music was being played, like it was a total a turning point. It was nuts. And I first met Ewan, our friend Ewan at that show because during uh, the mosh part for uh, Get Out, Ewan did this like terrifying gangly spider stage dive, landed right on my head. He was wearing a mad ball like tank top and had this, just like, you know. It was probably a mad ball basketball jersey, you know, in the era. Yeah. He had like, he had like enough jewelry hanging off of his head. It's probably like the equivalent of his body weight at that point. And this like crazy man lands on me. And I was just, you know, I remember turning around and seeing people like moving in a way that I'd never seen before. And I was like, okay, I have to start to understand this now. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the shows that you were kind of like, you know, at Who's Emma and that kind of stuff? Like when you started seeing like, I guess it was like The Swarm, the first? The Swarm was the first local band that I really, yeah, saw yeah. and bonded with. Uh, I think I saw. I can't remember the first time I saw them, but I I knew that they were the band that everybody liked, mm-hmm. and their their shirts and their records. There was something special about them because I don't know the scene seemed small and there wasn't like a local band. I missed Left for Dead, which I found out about you know later. I was like just barely missed them, so I wouldn't have been able to see them. But the Swarm was like the it band 
and they were like a huge gateway into like being part of the local scene for me. And Chris is so, so welcoming. Yeah. And like, you know, he was this larger than life character because he's the singer of a popular band. It's like, doesn't get much more textbook than that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But when, when somebody like that is welcoming to a young person and not just sort of like uh, patronizing, like, Oh, Hey man, like, how's it going? But also, you know, Chris just sort of used his whole personality with everybody and it sort of felt, it was like very cool to feel like you knew people. Yeah, you're right. He's like the guy that I think more than anyone that is that person that kind of like ushered in our era. Yeah. He you was, know, like he was the, the no one else was like, you know, and you and definitely, yeah, you know, you and so many time. people have been on this show saying, you know, but as far as someone in a band that you looked up to, yeah. that was also just normal. Yeah. And, and treated you normal. Yeah. And, and and that's that's the funny thing. It's so it's so hard to be in a music scene, or at least it felt so hard to be in a music scene because everybody is kind of competing for the same ten spots, you know, mm -hmm. the same the same ten spots beside the band. And it's actually you know like I was finding the hardcore scene it was a way more competitive place than I thought, and it made me like feel competitive, but in like a really petty way. Yeah, not like I don't know. It, it just I remember feeling. I look back at it now as being petty, but I remember being like, oh, like, you know, fuck that guy. There's like this sort of like scene climbing. There was like this total well, status micro is everything. Oh, this is all this microaggression. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy, but yeah. Yeah, the swarm and then uh, the warning or as we once were, mm -hmm. were like the two big bands. And I think... Uh, Are you forgetting about Walls Around Us? Walls Around Us. No, you're not really forgetting about that. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting Chance. That was definitely the second band. I never saw Walls Around you Us. Never saw, do you, no. so you weren't at that 10 yard fight? No, I missed a I, uh, show. No. And then there was a um, Time Flies 10 yard fight. But then there was. I was at the as Atari As We Once Were show. Okay. The Elmo. Yeah. I was at the In My Eyes show. Yeah. At the with the Jason, swarm. With the swarm. I, oh, be Mark Schubert. All right, now we're joined by Mark Schubert. Mark, how's it going? Yo, what's up? Rude music <laughs> celeb. <laughs> it is true. Uh, label mogul. <laughs> a greater personality. Greater personalities have rarely been in this room at the same time. This yeah, actually, really I wanted. I, I really do want to have you on the show. So this is like a, a future tease, I guess. Sure, but, we'll figure something out. Yeah, we'll figure something out for the future. This is a preview. Yeah, there's a preview. A preview. There's a cameo. Uh, it's like when you used to get a comic book and you'd find out, like, actually, the first appearance of Shadowhawk was in <laughs> issue 397 of Blood Panel, panel 12. Yeah, panel 12. He's, you see him in the background. So this will be uh, episode 104. People okay. will know that Mark Schubert's in the background. Deal. <laughs> um, yeah, I, so, like... Uh, after after seeing that that first week of gigs at the Elmo, I started seeing like the local bands, like As We Once Were, The Swarm, yeah, The Swarm in my eyes, As We Once Were, at the JCC, uh, The Swingin' Utters, and No Warning when they first changed over to No Warning. Yeah. I went to a couple of Oakville Fests. That As We Once Were show is one of my favorite That As We Once Were in my eyes <laughs> Swarm show. <laughs> it's probably like the most ultimate Damien show. Have you watched the video of that ever? There's a video? There's an incredible video that Mike shot. Oh my God. Where there's like a scene where Jordan, no, it's not Jordan. It's like Ian Courtney just starts toe tapping oh in the God. middle of the floor repeatedly out of excitement. And like, 
<laughs> There's some amazing mod parts. I'm playing basketball. That's a, yeah, of course. You're like just in the background, like shooting hoops. Like, I don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was already. Fuck it. I was already like in my into Japanese hardcore wannabe. <laughs> you're like. This shit's okay. Well, yeah, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I was like, I've got this bastard CD, though, that's blowing my mind. Very mint. Yeah. Mint, mint CD. Uh, but that show, like, uh, I guess, where were you kind of getting into these bands? Because you were super, and I remember the Dropkick Murphy. Oh, yeah. I was, I, I'm not avoiding talking about that, but, but <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was talking about, the, the like, pervasive... Like, I think they're not a bad band. No, 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 no. Yeah. I know, because I feel like it's kind of a funny joke for you and I, because like uh, I'm like you had a jacket. I had it. I had it. Oh, I had everything. I loved the Dropkick Murphys, <laughs> and I'll go on record. And I probably I haven't listened to it in forever, but I would totally still mess oh, with God, that first yeah. LP. Uh, but to me, there was like okay, so there was the pop punk, there was like the fast skate punk thing, and then there was this whole there was a ska or whatever, and like it briefly flirted with ska because it was like around. But then. The, the Dropkick Murphys, I got that Hellcat You were in a CD. ska band, right, briefly? No, were, no, were never. You were, you were never in John, John... Johnny New York and the Stink Bombs? <laughs> yeah, Johnny New York. <laughs> like the best band ever. <laughs> I, we tried to... Our friend our friend Jonathan, who was like... He knew stuff. His dad was from New York, and he was like going to St. Mark's going place to, yeah. and going to shows there, and he was like pals with this guy called Chrisipline, who used to be in the band Discipline, and he had a band called Under the Gun, and Johnny like... Folded us what's in. His, what's his band discipline like? Was that like a? It was like a New York hardcore, like kind of like. I Have you ever know. heard them? I did hear it. They had a CD or something. It's kind of. I just. I don't remember. It's like nineties New York. Nineties like New York hardcore. Oh, but sick. that guy, Chris, is like the early. He that Jonathan's friend Chris. Uh, his scene is like the very late eighties, early nineties, like probably Sheer Terror. Oh, sick! Like yeah. Dark Side dark, NYC. Yeah, like yeah, that yeah. kind of like. When before it really shifted over, it was still like the like '80s hangover, and everybody was still, still doing cool shit. And I think that guy, you know, he was really cool, and he was really nice to us actually. And, and now that you mentioned this fake band, Johnny New York and the Stink Bombs, say that again. <laughs> um, that might be the worst band name so dumb. ever brought up. Can, on can this you see? Show. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I wish. Oh man, it would be great to have had. There was this notebook. So my first band, I, the first time I played, I'll just gloss this over quickly. <laughs> the first band I played in, I joined my friend Jesse's band in high school called BSE. And they were like a kind of pop punk band. And they, they played with the Misfits. They'd they had played the some Misfits like, at the infamous Nazi Misfits yeah, show. Yeah, the, the most Nazi Misfits show. <laughs> well, like, Everybody the was like, <laughs> Nazis showed up at a show in Toronto that I can really remember. Oh, man. In, in force after sort of like the, I guess they were kind of like the BFGs kind yeah. of wiped them out yeah. in Toronto. Um, and, and, and which has come up on the show before. Stephen McBean talks about how they were chased across Canada by the BFGs. That's crazy. Um, but yes, yeah, so that show, they did show up. They were like belting this Throwing... band of little kids. Yeah. I remember him being like, there was bottles everywhere. It was <laughs> yeah. crazy. It and was it, insane. But I, you know, Jesse, Jesse was totally instrumental in, in getting me into music and getting me into the punk scene because he would like... He really knew. He had this band, and his uncle was in like a ACDC cover band oh, yeah, in, in the eighties. And yeah. he was, he was like a he was like a good great guitar player, and uh, he had he had some band called no his band was called Blade Runner. <laughs> And there's this like killer video of them, and they just look like fucking Twisted Sister, and they're playing on this. It looks like a giant stage, and I can't tell if it's a, it's a gig or if it's like a promo video yeah, yeah. or what. And then yeah, and so. Uh, James, Jesse's uncle, was like trying to teach us about gear and tone, and we're like, no, like, haven't you ever heard Drop Dead? They're, this is amazing. He's like, this sounds like a fucking vacuum cleaner, and you have to play it backwards, and it's on vinyl. Like, you're an idiot. 
We're like, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, because you had to play that record backwards. Yeah, you had to play it from the inside <laughs> out. Uh, but we had, this, we had this notebook of band names. That we so BSE was one thing, but that was like their high, their like young person pop punk band. Yeah. And then I joined, and they wanted to be a little bit more hardcore, more like New York hardcore. Yeah. The style of the well, day. Well, it was H2O. 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 Yeah. H2O is like a band that once again, you know, comes up a lot because they are so key in that bridge for they, people. They brought everybody in. Yeah. Because they're like, uh, I mean, they're like the vestigial tale of all the stuff that. Everybody was, we were looking, we were like, okay, we got to know about New York hardcore because New York hardcore is real. Like, okay, by Warzone, like, uh, I had that, like, uh, the, the, like, re-recording of the first Warzone 7 inches, yeah. which is a pretty cool thing to hear by yeah, then, actually. Yeah. And then, like, the, I remember getting the uh, Cheaters and the Cheated by Cause for Alarm when I was still in high school yeah. and being like, this is the craziest guitar playing I've ever heard. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, like, in my very near future, someone would... I would be able to get a copy of Kill Them All right? and be like, ah, I see. I see where you're sort of like <laughs> taking some of this from. Uh, but Was that like from Full Blast you're getting those? Records? Yeah, so Full Blast Records was the place. for. for I think that like if you're talking about subculture music history in Toronto from like the 90s to, for, for like our little patch, you got to talk about Full Blast mm-hmm. because Luann is like a... A, she's just, sorry, she's one of the most generous people in the world and so kind and so inclusive and also has really great taste in music. Incredible taste, yeah. And she, you know, she lived the hardcore scene from the early mid-80s through, through like, all the changes that Toronto would have done and she was going to the States and she did the great Tunga Tunga zine and was mm-hmm. doing these trades with mm-hmm. people. And so. had a column in MRR too yeah. for a brief period, right? So, like, you're talking about a person that, at that point, knows everything you want to know. Yeah. And, but and she just like, kind of you know she would humor us because I'd be going like oh yeah like can I get this a Killing Time record or like I want to get this uh, do you have Token Entry? Actually, I bought the first hardcore LP I ever bought was Jaybird by Token Entry. Oh, that's pretty I, cool. Which I got from Rotate This. Okay, yeah. yeah. Rotate is the other one that you have to bring up, but like Rotate lived the gimmick so much about an indie store that oh, it yeah. wasn't gonna be nice to you yeah they were just like we we hate you except for chris harper yeah chris chris harper also wonderful ambassador he was just like what are you into i'm like oh hardcore sir he's like you like concrete socks he's obsessed with concrete socks (laughs) (laughs) and so i knew about concrete socks before i knew about discharge or whatever you know what i mean i was like do you have any concrete socks luann she's like no go away yeah no he he is definitely uh he was definitely really cool but like unlike full blast they didn't really carry you know, those indie hardcore labels. No, it was a pure punk store. Yeah, Full Blast was a punk store. And, like, also the people she staffed that store with, it be it, like, Allison Baker having a couple shifts that she worked there. Yeah. or Or, like, you know, Glenn, Glenn or Simon, Simon Harvey. Yeah. And, like, these people were... Yeah. These these people knew music. Conduits. Yeah. And, and, like, if... And, you know, Simon, who listens to this podcast, and so, and he knows very well, he, he can be a very typical record store yes, kind of guy and he's so cynical and he's so like sharp tongued and it's like oh it's just like it's like a steak in a oh, shark yeah, tank when like some idiotic kid in a school uniform like hi uh, you know, do you have like the Blink 182 new CD so I was just like oh yeah here we go baby like you can hear his <laughs> mental uh, knuckles cracking but actually this guy turned me on to a ton of great music oh absolutely and, no. and I cannot Glenn, overstate that enough. yeah absolutely and uh, and so much like like I think that the three of them are people like that was 
really what schooled me in a deeper way about knowing about music. Yeah, and this is the thing, like, I... You sort of like you sort of slightly weep for the lack of something like that, and hopefully, and I'm sure it does still exist. Yeah. But it feels like, and I, this is like the really typical old, older person thing to say, you know. And I, I don't know, like these these sort of stalwart people that were into punk in the '80s, and then like they lived through they they had their own transition probably into like garage or mm-hmm. or indie rock or like post whatever or you know? Japanese or Japanese hardcore, hardcore. Song, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, they, you know, they get over it, but they just know tons about music at the most crucial time. And I think that it's really easy to just get information about music elsewhere now. And, well, of course, you know, I was thinking we were just in Richmond, Virginia, and went into Vinyl Conflict. And, mm-hmm. like, if, you, if Bobby was working, like, there's a guy that knows lots about music, too, and he can tell you, and he's generous. Ryan Tong and Faith Void, he's generous. He'll give you a lot of information. But you can, you can always go somewhere else if you don't know. And it really... Like, it's so crucial. Like, I, I feel like I relied so heavily on them to understand something. And, and one of, like, the big things for my taste... So, like, we've been talking about taste. And, you know, I, w- I was, like, really railroaded into this, like, New York metallic hardcore thing. And I was really into Scarhead. And mm-hmm. I was really into the Dropkick Murphys. And I was really into uh, Sheer Terror. And, yeah, uh, what was it? What was it? Uh, 25 to Life. Love 25 to Life. Yeah, Madball. Yeah, yeah. All the All the, like, typical bands... Not and, really typical. Well, but I think, for, I think yeah. it's difficult if you're like into New York hardcore at that time period. But yeah. I think that's like so reflective of the fact that yeah, John Johnny was going down there, yeah. constantly and getting access to like and all he, this culture that he knew the people. Yeah, he was hanging out with those people. And the, the like late '90s Agnostic Front record. Yeah, I like I remember getting that and being like, yeah, I like this pretty good. It's it's okay, but like you know, I, I don't understand where this angle of hardcore is from coming from. And then Martin from Career Suicide was like, oh, he had a he had a a, a combat copy of uh, Victim in Pain, and he's like, you want to hear what Agnostic Front really sounds like? I'm like, what do you mean? I, I mean, I have the CD, and he's like, no, no, this is their second record from like 1984. I'm like, they're that old? And he puts on Victim in Pain, and I just started laughing because I couldn't believe kind of how good it was. But and and the same thing. I, these epiphany moments, like full blast again. I asked. I had heard of the band Infest, and uh, I had special ordered a copy of the Devoid of Faith Voorhees split twelve inch. Yeah. And uh, Luann, I still have it. It's got my name on it, and I still have a poster somewhere that that uh, she like got into the shop for some reason, and gave to me. And uh, she's. I was like, I heard about this band Infest. Do you have that? And she's like. I'll get it in for you too. And so she ordered in like a copy of like a repress, whatever press of the infest thing was going around. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another one where I put it on and I, it was, you know, when you hear people talking about the Ramones and they're like, yeah, we like went over, my friends came over and we like smoked weed and we put the Ramones on and we just laughed our heads up cause we couldn't believe it. Uh, I got this infest record back and I, I invited my bandmates, Jesse and James over I was like, guys, I got this Infest record. They're like, oh, we've never heard Infest. I'm like, we got to listen to it together. So we all sat down in front of my record player in my room at my dad's house and put this thing on. We were like laughing our asses off for the entire like 
12 minutes of that record, we were just like, this is the most fucking insane thing we've ever heard. Listen to his voice. It's terrible. Listen to the recording. It's terrible. Listen to, look at the artwork. It's awful. And then it got to the end and we were like, put it on again. And then we listened to it like 50 times. And, <laughs> and it was like another weird, like turning, turning moment. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I guess it's like, were you into Charles Bronson? Because that's the other thing that's a big question. Wait, I think we've also, we did, you found a way to dance over uh, the, uh, didn't you have, what was the band, that your first band that played on stage? Oh yeah, so BSE was the first time I ever played yeah. on stage and we did a set of, of Rancid, Dropkick Murphys, and something else covers. Uh, and the, okay, here's the circumstance. So Damien and I both went to the same high school and it's just like, super like you know prim and proper kind of place and uh it was an all boys school and uh so they wanted to do something nice for the for the student body and the, the german department which was one guy somehow through the embassy or the goethe institute had brought this band called die sterne <laughs> he corralled them into taking an off day from their you know big press tour of you know german language speaking <laughs> bad pop rock to come and play like a now boys that you're a band. Yeah. now that you're a band you know that this band was working like the biggest government scam oh, ever. Hundred like, percent. Can you imagine the amount of government money that these people had coming into their shit? Going right in the gas tank of those planes, <laughs> going right into the guitar strings. Like, I'll be like, like how, how does a band do a tour and not play a real show? <laughs> and not like, did the school pay for it? Like, there's no way. So this, but the school paid for this huge outdoor stage and lights thing, like a <laughs> real stage. And uh, I, I bought a guitar. It was. It was I had I had like my dad had an electric guitar kicking around or there was one in the house and it was like a cheesy Telecaster but I was uh, I'd like saved up some money and and I got this red for this show because I was so excited got this red knockoff Rickenbacker El Degas Racker guitar the Tim Armstrong uh... it, it was a little bit Tim Armstrong <laughs> it, it, it was like it's like Beatles Tim Armstrong and this thing sounded terrible it was like it wouldn't stop feeding back you couldn't turn it off the toggle switch kept going and the strings were so close together it's supposed to be like a rickenbacker but it's you know it's just like put together by like somebody probably like scratching their head some in the basement some, yeah just like some, like, yeah. they're like that's why the frets are so close together yeah. and i'm playing this thing and it sucks but i had i bleached my hair for the show i i was not aware of the i so in my in my oi stage one of the first punk records I ever got two pieces of vinyl from Full Blast was the Son of Oi compilation. Yeah. So I would have been like 14, 15 years old and I was like, I just got to look like these guys. And there's a picture on the back of like the Cockney Rejects going like this, that famous picture of, uh, of uh, Stinky Turner. And uh, I was like, oh, God, I'm going to do a lot of that, whatever that means. I'm like, how does he get his fingers to do that? I was like putting a tennis ball in between my fingers so that they would go wider. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, whatever is going to get the job done is going to get the job done. And uh, so there's this picture of me and Jesse, and it's amazing because it is like, it is, it is a time capsule beyond time capsule. He's got wraparound Oakley shades and bleach blonde hair. <laughs> I think I'm still wearing my mushroom necklace. I got a black hooded school sweater on, and I'm going, I'm doing the, doing the two fingers like this. Uh, and uh, I've, uh, it was just actually the best day ever. It was so fun. I couldn't, I was like addicted to performing after that. I got up there, couldn't hear a thing, played terribly, 
didn't know anything about playing, but that was awesome. That was my first show. Uh, so where did BSE go after that? BSE went to the basement. We had a bit of a revamp. Yeah. So armed with okay so here's the interesting <laughs> thing is that we were so armed. you guys also this is when the time you started hooked up with martin well this martin, is, like yeah. in high school he was a crazy man was an odd cat yeah <laughs> he was like martin was martin is like my best friend but and it, it, he's so sturdy he's he, matured into he's something matured, so like, different he's like locked tight but back then i feel like he was totally like nuts i, I thought yeah. of him and i thought like Anything can happen if I'm going to hang out with this guy. Well, I remember when I first started seeing him around, and he was like the guy with the super long Kurt Cobain-esque yeah. hair. Bad Religion patch. Yeah, well, I think it was even before he had the Bad Religion patch, where oh, yeah. he was just like, and I would, and it was like, you know, years later, that would be the guy that would be sort of stereotyped as like the, the one that you have to worry about in the class. Oh, or, yeah. He, <laughs> typical like teacher railroad, railroaded Martin into being like, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a bad kid. Yeah. But, uh, oh, man. Uh, yeah, well, Martin too was, was into like Victory Records stuff then yeah. as well, and he was into well, those Victory samplers were. Yeah, he had a he had a really cool <laughs> Victory Records windbreaker actually, and Trial. <laughs> Remember the show? He did a Trial show. He did the Trial. He show? He did the Trial show. I think. No, no, no. He no. Had John some, Gerson did the Trial show. The one at the downstairs at the Big Bop. Yeah, yeah, that was John okay. Gerson. And I thought Martin had something to do. No, with No, uh, I think it was Gerson, and I think it was like the. And Adam Gill, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a cool show. I remember that because it was like... I was away. That's when I moved away. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that trial show was great, actually. And I got really into trial. And then Je- I saw Je- trial and they were fantastic at the time. I remember seeing them in... Uh, that, that record, uh, Is This Our Lives or whatever. I was like, it's so heavy. Is that the one on Crime Thing? No, it's the one before that's on Crime Thing. Well, oh, maybe yeah. maybe This Our Lives is on, on Crime Thing. No, too. it was uh, the one on Crime Thing I saw them at the Gilman. Oh, nice. And it was... Big move. Yeah, it was... Well, mom was a flight attendant, so I could fly standby. Giddy up. See, that's what I'm saying. You get these little ins to the culture. You, when you go somewhere else, it's not because Toronto is like great and everything, but it's small. It's isolated. It's and conservative. Bands were bands didn't come here the well, same way. Like, they changed the rule. At yeah. one point, you could bring in bands for like I think it was like fifty bucks. You could bring in like ten bands on it. Yeah, and then it became something like five hundred dollars per band. Oh man, to bring them across the border, yeah. and uh, it just became impossible to do those big package tours. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way, so. But then, if you go somewhere else, like, and the states is so huge, and there's mm-hmm. so many bands, then now always, like, you're just bound to see something cool, and then you you bring it back, you kind of bring the energy back here. Sometimes you just hold it so close to you, and you don't let it go. But other times, you one can put it out in the world, you know. Yeah. But yeah, the uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> something funny. We're talking about your band transitioning. Oh yeah, like when you we, met with Martin. Uh, yeah, well, Martin. At that time, everybody's tastes were kind of like I was becoming really good friends with Martin and Jesse was uh, and James were still really into like what they were into I got Martin got me into Charles Bronson he lent me his copy of the Charles Bronson 12 inch and again this is like one of those things where I could I kind of just like you know I hadn't heard anything like it before and I thought it was so fast and so tight and, and I was really attracted to and of course you know this like the kind of humor aspect I'm like pretty 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 basic uh, pretty basic guy sometimes and uh, you know I just like dumb comedy and uh and also like i have like a great deal of trouble trying to put that sort of shim in front of my personality that other people do where you can have like your your creative idea i'm just like ah, come on you know there's got to be a banana peel in there somewhere so i was like oh this is great this band's funny and they sound crazy and i got super into charles bronson i thought like oh this is my band this is the band that i want it sounded kind of like 
they kept name checking 80s. I was getting really into early 80s hardcore at this point. It was like 1999 or whatever. Getting really into early 80s hardcore, and I, I was, I got into, I got a, uh, that CD that Craig Karen did of the Neos EP. Yeah. So I was getting really into the Neos. I bought a copy of Back from Samoa, and uh, I had the Faith Void split. And like you know, a few a few records here and there that I started to like really understand. And then Charles Bronson was like name checking all these bands, and so I was like, "This is good. This is great. This is my, I'm gonna like know something, and this band's cool." And I they, I just missed them, so I have to like really get everything I can. And then so I was Martin and I did this power violence band together, which is like if you think about what people consider power violence today, it's like tight as hell influenced by like a killer death metal everybody can play there's mosh parts it's like they've made this amal- perfect amalgamation of you know crossed out and Beharit and yeah. and you know uh, Neanderthal and and I don't know like and and Killing Time but you know in my mind power violence was just like do whatever you want yeah. so we had this shitty band called board of education yeah, it was like it was fucking so brutal. Bad. it was so dumb it was like i had a blast doing it obviously it was like it was like it was like truly just acting like an idiot and we would make these live cd's and we played shows and did dumb there stuff there were skits there were skits yeah uh remember the raver one like Oh hey, we want to go to the show. <laughs> no, you want to go to the rave, Dad. <laughs> no, you can't. But I want to. Fuck you, son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you played the dad in that skit, if I remember correctly. It's really up my alley. And the CDs would come with like razor blades well, in there, we, or your penises drawn on them. Well, we were we were getting we were getting really into Gigi Allen, and we were like, we gotta have this like sleazy aspect to it, and so we. We Martin and I got drunk and we we traced the outlines of our penises on on these CDRs and then we put razor blades in the CDs to to like I don't know why we did that because we're like it'll ruin the CD or like it'll fuck with someone. We played Board of Education played a show at Who's Emma with Closet Monster and the drummer of Closet Monster, fuck he was like a machinist or something like like solid solid like blue collar guy works with his hands and he's like oh, I really dug your stuff man can I get a CD so he buys a CD puts it in his bag and forgets about it the fucking razor blade falls out and he reaches into his bag to get some shit for work and like slices his arm open nearly like severs a fucking vein the next time I saw him he's like I'm not happy with you I'm like what What? he's like your fucking dumb CD had this razor blade in it and it cut me I was like oh I'm so sorry <laughs> anyway so Board of Education but that was it was <laughs> you know so a success I guess uh and that point too, you know, that that was a funny thing. So BSE became Scare Tactic, and we started. We we made this CD that was like. Oh, so, so was Board of Education exist? No, Board you're, of Education. You're leaving out as one. Oh yeah, yeah. So no, uh, right. So BSE became as one, and then we were this like sort of unity style moshy New York hardcore war zone influenced, war zone influenced kind of thing uh, with and strife strife. We we remember we went into the studio that Jesse's uncle hooked up, and the guy's like, "What do you want to sound like?" And we just gave him. Uh, in this defiance for my stripe. We're like this. He's like, no problem. <laughs> uh, and so that was that. And, you know, Jesse was straight edge and he was getting into like, uh, he was like starting to like use his head. He was writing letters to the guy from trial. They were talking and, you know, it's like end of high school. You're starting to think you're smart. And like, so the lyrics were, he were like progressively straight edge, but he didn't 
I wasn't straight edge and maybe it was like a, a kind gesture to me to not have this like to not be exclusion exclusive or whatever. <laughs> well, it was like straight, straight edge in, in your face. face. What, what a, a fucking, fucking waste. waste. Take your fucking bullshit and get out of this place. X's on your hand. Take a fucking stand. You know, like whatever it was. It's a killer high school straight edge lyrics. And everybody was like. And tattoo flash on the cover. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Big time tattoo flash. That was like tattoo flash. I had like Elvis hair. Uh, Jesse was like X'd up like crazy. Uh, we took like photos in the alleyway behind where the transect is behind the green room because it was like sick, sick graph. <laughs> oh man! I mean, this is like, and then he had there was it was shortly after Columbine too, and he had this weird sort of lamentation for the victims of the school shooting called "Caught You in My Crosshairs," and it was like we're like oh, we're really saying something here. But then shortly thereafter, like the sort of musical sound and the kind of like angle, the like really serious angle. Not the scare tactic. So as that was as one, and then you were also at the same time in board of education, which is the silliest. It's like the dumbest band, <laughs> the yeah. complete it's opposite like, of this super <laughs> earnest. Yeah. Also, not as great as some of the other musical achievements in your life, band. No, I uh, I, I remember. I mean, I kind of learned how to play drums because of Board of Education because we used to cover the song Girl Problems by SOA, and I yeah. just learned how to play drums for that. So you drummed it? Who, you drummed it? We, everybody did everything. It was just, there was, it's not <laughs> It was improvised thing. lyrics. It was, it, Board of Education made Psycho Sin sound like, you know, <laughs> Mahler or whatever, <laughs> you know? It was so horrible and great. Uh, but yeah, so at the same time as this bad band, we've got As One, which is like sort of somber, straight edge band. We were trying to be on the scene. That's around the time. Trying to be the that, Swarm, too. The Swarm was such a big Oh, influence. huge influence. Yeah, there was... That's good. Good. Thank God you're here because I would have just gone off the rails. But you're right. The Swarm was heavily influencing As One. And then because we were getting into the local hardcore scene, we were buying more records, especially me. At this point, I'm, I'm like, I got... In, uh, big turning point in my musical life Steve Perry played me uh, this is Boston not LA mm -hmm. and so I heard that and then I heard the Jerry's Kids LP and the FU's and I was just like oh my god this is what I want to sound like and at the same time I'm I'm like dragging this sort of like metal hardcore thing with me and I was also because of, through Charles Bronson I decided to get into power violence but like I kind of like found my way to the good stuff pretty, you, pretty quickly. I was really into Crossed Out. Were you into Godzilla at all? Were you seeing Gojira? I, I, that was like the early, early days. Yeah. Gojira was the first bass player of Career Suicide was in this very also power violence band called Gojira. And they I, were, I think they were we refer to it as Poser Violence. Poser Violence. That's what Simon yeah. Harvey used to call it. Ouch. But they were influenced by like Spaz. And so like, you know, Spaz, cro Crossed Out, No Comment. Steve, same same day I heard Boston Not LA in high school, I also heard Downsided by No Comment. Yeah. So I'm like, my brain is getting like rattled in three directions, and that's kind of where I was like, okay. We, and I also was really into AOD, mm -hmm. which we can't we can't skip. I was hugely into AOD because <laughs> no, we cannot. They, they were like, that was the the eighty. That was like this early '80s sound that I really. It was like fast and simple, and the, I just liked the way it sound. And they were like kind of shitty and funny. Yeah. And I thought that that was so great. And so I got really into AOD. And then people, like you and Mike used to bust my balls about liking AOD because it was so silly and dumb. And you guys clearly had better taste back then. No, no, it wasn't. AOD's awesome. White no, Guy Jinx is incredible. No, it's great. But And I was just like, oh, fuck these guys for hating on this record. Like, I, And it made me like it even more. And I would try and find these AOD riffs. I was like, you see, the Crow Man's ripped off AOD here. Like, I got it, the AOD demo, and there's some song that sounds exactly like Survival of the Streets. <laughs> and I guarantee you there's like a kind of taste crossover, but, you know, we're not, we're not gonna like, put the historical stance saying that the Crow Man's ripped off AOD. 
but because I'm sure Harley would produce a demo that was from '81. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, here's my first band from 1975. Yeah, it's it's like exactly the Chromax LP. Yeah, he's that's that shit's just been like a finished product inside yeah, Harley's brain, like since he was born. Yeah, it's in this book. If you listen to the book that uh, oh, the new book Alan Ginsberg put out. Oh right, yeah, that poetry the back book, one back young, then, Wild Young yeah, Savage the, or whatever. The Chromax like. already ripped into that DNA. <laughs> um. But yeah, I, then, so like, as one became Scare Tactic, and Scare Tactic was like uh, dark, it's darker and a little bit more contemporary and a little bit more informed. So I was listening to like Jerry's Kids and Crossed Out and No Comment and, uh, and like whatever else. Uh, Charles Bronson. <laughs> you guys made that transition as as one because the demo yeah. came out as as yeah. one. Yeah, so the demo was 1999 and the demo was as one and it was like, it had a reference to Sons of Ishmael in it and it had, I, I like, because I was like, like I was saying before, you just sort of collect all this information and you don't know, I was just sort of not confident enough to like make my own thing so I thought I had to incorporate all these other references to things that I knew about so that people knew that I was coming from the right place. It's like a typical, like, or maybe not typical, but it's very insecure behavior. Mm -hmm. So the, the as one demo had uh, a reference to sons of Ishmael in the title for the band photos. I had the pictures of the members of battalion of battalion of saints. And there was like an image from the born against patriotic hymns in there. And uh, there was a, a pastiche of like whatever I was into and uh, and that was as one, and then we thought like oh, it's not really the same band, and as one's just sort of like cheesy. And band. also, you got you started getting underground hype for that demo in Toronto. Yeah, people people liked it. Okay, well I'll, I'll finish that thought. So pe people did like the as one demo, and because it sort of and it got some, I think it got reviewed in Maximum because of Steve Perry. Well, I remember Mike putting it on too. Oh, really? In a big way. See, this is this is cool too about about Mike, and like this is my around that time is when I first started to experience Mike, and like I knew him on the scene, and and his his sort of outward personality was similar now. He's like kind of a pretty introverted, and and a hard nut to crack, and so you know it's like I'm young and I'm like still trying to fit in, and uh, you know so I'd like. And he does shows. I knew that he did all the gigs with him. And actually, you know, for as standoffish as he could be, he totally extended the uh, welcoming. Like, put us on a couple shows, even though he probably thought we were lame asses. But like, put us on gigs, and all of a sudden, we were part of the local scene. It felt amazing. Uh, and the scare tactic demo or whatever, he wanted to like include it in like a Toronto comp. He sort of saw something that was going on. And yeah, it was quite cool. So and and so as one became scare tactic, and then around the same time. Career suicide in its incarnation, which is so. To, no, we, 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 we can leave it there for the, today because we got to run to the studio now. Uh, yeah, we're actually but we're going to leave it there because I want I want to get into the fact that yeah, you you I, you and the, Martin stole Career Suicide. Yeah, it was the it and was it's a not your band. Straight up coup d'état. It is not your band. It is stolen. You Part borged two, it. Part two, baby. You borged it. I borged it. All right, Jonah. Well, thank you so much for doing this, buddy. My pleasure, Damien. Thank you. All right, Jonah. Here we are. We're back. We're back. We We've were, lost a Schubert. We yeah. We don't have our uh, our audience, our like sort of fact checking enthusiastic audience like no. we had last time. And no, uh, we're not around the kitchen table, but we are around our. Uh, this is the other place we meet most frequently. This is probably the place we spend the most time together. That's right. In a hotel room. Witching hour. One thirty. <laughs> 9 a.m., just minutes past 1.38 a.m. Whatever time you happen to be listening to this. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's relevant because I think I'm I'm having to chase Doyle, right? 
right, is this episode coming after the one with This Doyle? is, yeah, we are the we are So the we should episode. probably mention some kind of like misfits. We don't have to reference any okay. misfits stuff. Don't worry, buddy. They all exist in their own universe. Okay, cool. You don't have to make reference to anyone else. Okay. People are just listening to my blown out voice. But no, I wanted to make sure we got you back on because we left. I know. We, we at just we, the beginning of the Jonah ascent. Okay. Right, we left at uh, at Scare Tactic. Oh, right. So, yeah, Scare Tactic was my first real band. It wasn't a band that I had... It it came... It became a band out of something that I had joined into, but that was the first time that I had really had a chance to write a song for a group that, I don't know, was was organized and together and sort of had this notion of itself. So, yeah. It's funny when you think about it, but, like, technically... Scare Tactic kick-started the Toronto wave that all of us rode. In a, Chronologically, yes. Yeah, it chronologically. Was, chronologically, yeah. It was I think like, predates that No Warning 7-inch, too. It does. It was the, the demo that became the 7-inch. The demo was 1999 when it came mm-hmm. out, and then the 7-inch was like 2000. But, you know, I think that the, I, I probably back then I thought about that chronology and thought it was very important that that came out first. But I think actually in retrospect, it's interesting because even though it did come out at the time, Scare Tactic was not nearly as embedded as any of the other bands that were sort of on the scene. So it made more sense that like the Torchbearers were the no warning as we once were and then eventually fucked up and stuff like Ah. that. But Scare Tactic was like in the milieu. Yeah, because I think like, you know, you had, James wasn't really involved in anything else, but you and Jesse were kind of like the nexus for... uh, Career suicide when you would scab into career suicide. I think Jesse was wasn't he in career suicide first? Oh, uh, I don't know if no, he was in fuck Jonah first. Fuck, Wait, well, let's, fuck, we, we're not okay. even gonna get there. We we're have not, to we're deal not with scare dagger. Je- Jesse was in career suicide for many years though. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but like you guys were, I know what you're saying like it didn't like it was it was almost like you guys were the band of the other scene. The parallel there was that no warning scene. Yeah, and then there was like the uh, equalizing distort scene. Yeah, well, I like to think definitely that. Uh, we were like a positive outsider in the sense that like every scene has its stalwart people and we were totally newcomers and so we just represented a slightly different angle on it. And yeah, I guess, you know, as young people, we were, the our sort of immediate peers ended up being this sort of, uh, the other side of, yeah, the people that knew everybody. It was like the, we got involved with the radio show Equalizing Distort, which was Sunday night's and it still goes on to this day, and and Steve is, I can't tell if he's like a masochist or a saint for putting himself through like all of the minutia of every possible band from, you know, Des Moines to Kuala Lumpur, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a labor of love, obviously. And so, I mean, it felt quite cool to be involved in this thing that was like, that was on the, on a radio and interested in bands from around the world, and so, yeah, we were we were learning a lot, and yeah. C. Perry is also not someone else that deserves, like, you know, a ton of credit for I mean, everything he does to this day in music. But also, I think, like, you know, once again, that whole scene of bands that started, you know, No Warning, Fucked Up, Career Suicide, yeah. um, Brutal Nights, uh, like, you know, like Adversary. There's a bunch of other bands that were also lumped in there, too. Yeah. But it was all, like, Equalizers of the Store was, like, a really early place that a lot of bands could do live sessions. Yeah. Haymaker even did one there. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, too, because it's, I feel like at that point, there wasn't really the sort of community center vibe that there is 
now and in recent years, I, f- I feel like, you know, Full Blast Records, when that was around, was a was a huge sort of center for people to go to. And then there was also Peddler and sort of, uh, uh, what was that other, and Rotate, but like, there wasn't like a punk punk record store, I feel like, at that era. And for, for some reason... Steve reached out to everybody and had them on his show, and it was it was a place to focus some energy, certainly. Well, that was almost like a point before everything exploded, yeah. where it really was small. Oh yeah, like there was like a major scene contraction in throughout the the late nineties. So by the time early two thousands came around, yeah, it was real, like it was like a hundred people. Yeah, and especially after Who's Emma, yeah. Uh, disappeared or went shut down whose emma was an anarchist free bookstore with a venue in the basement and when that went away i feel like people really lost something that they could rely on and there wasn't a venue anymore there was this sort of this intangible thing in the air and there were a lot of improvised spaces in town like kites and then the anarchist free space and but then you just had to work in these weird other spaces like q bar yeah clinton's like all these sort of Anya's. like Anya's. Anya's was great actually. That there should be like a whole portion of this dedicated to this Middle Eastern restaurant that somehow got suckered into doing hardcore shows, and they did everything from like. Well, they always loved us when we did our shows, but then there were other kids that would come in and do those kind of like more mosh medley shows and trash the place. And it's yeah, like, exactly. Why would you fuck up one of the few places <laughs> we can do this? Yeah, it's just not you. It's not worth the grandstanding to like. Take away. I mean, there's it, everything is so hard fought in this city. Like, you think of Toronto back then, and it feels way more wide open. Like, yeah. you could find a little nook or, or cranny to do your gig in, and it wasn't a big deal. There wasn't anything that anybody had to latch on to. Everybody was still so unsuspecting. And now, real estate is so high, everything is redeveloped or gentrified or whatever. But, like, it was impossible to find a space back then, too. You know, maybe even more difficult. Yeah. No, I don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, no, well, whatever. Yeah, I, mean, like, no, I think people are more, you know, and I don't think this has anything to do with necessarily just the bands kind of doing well from our city, but, like, I think people are more receptive to it. Clubs and bars are more receptive to having, like, a punk band yeah. play or, like, a hardcore band. Well, that's the interesting thing about that era that we were in is it feels like it was really the last breath of a changing city. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I find it kind of... I mean, it's a little egotistical to imagine that our generation of bands, that five to ten years or whatever it was, was somehow representative of like an older and completely different world. But in some ways, you know, I can't imagine it being the same. Like the city is just so inextricably different now mm-hmm. and in the past three years even than it was in two thousand, the year 2000. It's... It, I think it has a huge effect on the way bands formed and the way bands played and the kinds of decisions they they would make. I mean, again, like, it's impossible for me to speak from a position of really uh, the, like, sort of unknown aspects of youth, but I, it kind of felt like a slightly more hostile place. Yeah. And that's not, I'm not trying to say, like, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, you couldn't walk down the street without getting hit with, like, a baseball bat or whatever, but it, it's... Like, hostile is a much more widely applicable word. Yeah, I think you're hostile, not, not necessarily physical, but, like, there was definitely, like, a... You know, it wasn't like the indie rock scene was necessarily openly embracing punk till we kind of... No, definitely not. Happen. It definitely yeah. felt like it was at odds. And now the indie rock scene almost exists uh, around the hardcore scene. Yeah, or, or at least, like, there's lots of the same records being talked about. 
Yeah. But the hardcore scene now seems to be way more comfortable talking about other kinds of music. Yep. I mean, everybody probably listened to everything under the sun. Yeah, like I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't like say if you were in a, if fucked up wouldn't have name checked like Sonic Youth or Big Black or something or like uh, the Raincoats necessarily when we were starting. I think we did. I guess we did because it was all post breakout. Yeah, that's true. Like I think we were the uh, the perfect example of like that moment when all this hardcore information and punk information hit the internet. Yeah, and the, like and you know I don't just say us isn't fucked up I mean like our scene like all those kids in Boston like the painkiller records yeah, kids yeah, yeah. and like uh, like people on the west coast too and people all over just started like fiending for this information and that was like the birth of this sort of punk rock otaku culture I feel although I could be wrong but it sort of seems like that the fiending for the information is dissipating and I think that's kind of a good thing actually I, I spent so much time fixating on digging as much as and still do digging up as much possible information relic history fossil whatever about music and now i think people are actually it feels as an outsider as though the younger versions of our our bands or you know you know what i'm saying Uh, like younger bands are just more interested in they've heard what they've heard and they just want to do their thing and only their thing and it's not about digging something up or referencing something or trying to like revisit a thing that they found inspirational. They seem to have, have they seem to have a place where the inspiration already exists, and they want to perpetuate that, not just kind of living in any anybody's shadow. It was exactly like that in the mid '90s, though. Yeah, I guess so. You know, like it was like that was the time that everyone forgot about the history. No I, one really talked about cool bands. It was like, well, it's we've got a new thing. Instill is better than the Chromags. Yeah. Well, it's. It super feels super nineties now, uh, but anyway. So where did I guess he robbed the anarchist free space? Yeah, that to me is the most famous scare tactic show. Oh yeah, that one. So, so I uh, scare tactic. We were we were like kind of on the scene at that point, but we weren't playing that many shows. And I think I I had just started to get to know Mike, and I asked him if we could play. Uh, this upcoming show it was like the first Haymaker show in Toronto. Yeah, it was Haymaker just formed, but it was Catharsis. It like. was Catharsis, Haymaker, Shipwreck, maybe? Maybe Shipwreck, yeah. And, and Scare Tactic. And it might have been our first show as Scare Tactic. And Mike said, yeah, you can play, but you have to bring the PA. <laughs> and, which is like, you know, classic bargaining move there. And It's like course, if you guys hadn't played, what would happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think... Also, you know, to us, we were like, well, fuck, we're going to play with Catharsis and, and Haymaker, the new Left for Dead band? Like, <laughs> this is going to be amazing. Of course they can use our PA. So we lend in the PA, and we're not really ready for... We're not really ready for, for what we're getting ourselves into. Because how, how, I would knew, like, I didn't know. I was nervous. Everyone was nervous because the Everyone. rumor had spread because they played that show the night before they beat up Maharaj. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, that was the night before. That was like the Jesus night before. So yeah, you roll up and there's just like a bunch of weird. Well, there was just like you know where there's these like pudgy green losers trying to like shout at everybody, and then Haymaker rolls up looking like the cast of fucking Slapshot or whatever, like ECW. Yeah, like ECW wrestlers, and uh, 
for some reason our my guitar amp broke or somebody's guitar amp broke and uh, I think I went up to Mike or I can't remember if he was involved in this so I was like hey man is there an amp we can use and he's like ask Haymaker and so uh, you know in retrospect they were friendly enough but I, I just went up to Beckman who was about 10 times the size of me at that point and, and uh, like shaking and sweating I just was like hey uh my amp screwed up, like, can I use yours? He's like, yeah, sure, but you got to load it in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so roll in this gigantic 70s Ampeg amp. I plug into it. I'm pretty sure I broke it while we were playing because I didn't know, I'd never plugged in an amplifier before. I just had, like, somebody else had always done it for me. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure I plugged in the wrong thing and it, like, broke halfway through our set. Uh, the set was fine. Haymaker go on and... Instantly start throwing the microphone around like, like baseballs, spearing it, smashing it, and like <laughs> tearing the wires apart. And I'm, it's, I'm looking at the PA and I'm looking at Jesse, who owned the PA, and he's just sort of looking at me like, "What the hell do we do? Like, we can't do anything. We can't do anything." And then somebody was drinking like this disgusting five-gallon water jug filled with like malt liquor, and it was just like the stench in there was out of control. <laughs> yeah. And nobody could move, thankfully, because it was really packed. But yeah, and then Catharsis was like an even weirder set. I remember sort of standing inside and outside for most of their set. I walked in the set to sort of check on how things were going, and I just heard him shouting, "Christ, Christ, Christ, release me, Christ!" And I was like, "I'm out of here." <laughs> <laughs> Catharsis was always a weird fun. <laughs> that was the uh... that was a good show, but that that felt like. Yeah, I mean, that that was like a funny thing, though, because I think all the other shows that I'd gone to that were in Kensington Market or not at, like, a club were small, were really yeah. small, and that show was packed, and there were people from out of town, and there was two out-of-town bands. You had the last Zemma show with Ruination? I was away on was my upstairs. on my big uh, canoe trip. Oh, yeah, this is the defining part of your early music career. Well, yeah, I left... Your double life as a canoeer yeah. and a hardcore kid. Well, I so I was always really interested in outdoors things, and I'd been going up north uh, for years and and spending a lot of time in the bush. And this was sort of like the last big trip that I was going to do before going to away to school or sort of getting on with life. And I spent two months in the Northwest Territories uh, and Alaska and the Yukon on this epic canoe trip. But it meant I missed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was almost three months, actually. I mean, I meant, I meant I missed, like, the summer of hardcore, and I just started playing with... Okay, Board of Education was happening at that time. Yeah, Board of Education. And uh, and I left, and in this effort to sort of just be dicks, I guess, Board of Education started a band called Fuck Jonah and recorded a demo and started playing shows. But who would shows. have been in Board of Education of Form Fuck Jonah? No, I, I think I, it was yeah. none of them. No, <laughs> It was just a weird... I can't, it was like Mark Pesci and Martin and Jesse Parker and... But Martin's not on the demo, right? No, he sings. Oh, he sings on the yeah, demo? Yeah, he sings on the demo. But, the, I mean, they... I Actually, like, you're, you, your brave listeners are hearing all these names from Toronto, uh, past and present, that you may or may not encounter. But I think the best song that has never been heard from that little funny early pocket of uh, the punk scene in Toronto is the Simon Harvey fight song <laughs> by Fuck Jonah <laughs> in the lyrics you never come to see us it's getting in between us it's getting in between us uh, fuck what is it? you're such a fucking genius uh, 
I don't know. What was it? There was one, like, really... Uh, oh, got kicked out of Clevo for for being too fucking emo. <laughs> Stage dive and sink, you fat dink. <laughs> it's a mean line. Harsh lines. Oh, Simon, if you're listening, sorry. <laughs> you I know right you are you listening. In the band. I, yeah, it wasn't me. Back then, I was just <laughs> Simon's words. Jonah probably comes from one of those countries where they sit around in a circle in the dirt and beat instruments. <laughs> and he's oh. he's right. <laughs> I, I was I was up there. So where were you? Uh... So that summer was the summer that last Suzanne Evans show happened. Yeah, so I missed everything, and that's when like the the Our War demo came out. Our War demo, the Haymaker demo, yeah, the Fighting Chance demo. The Fighting Chance demo, I thought it came out later. I came out like right around the same time, okay. and the Stop and Think demo actually, because I remember coming back from that trip and being like, "Okay, got to catch up on hardcore." And I met up with Jesse, and we were driving around, and he's like, he "Had this stack of tapes, and it was Stop and Think, American Nightmare demo." Uh, Haymaker demo and the R War demo, and I was like beside myself because I thought, like, oh, I missed everything. I'm like, did yeah. you see these bands? He's like, yeah, Stop and Think, Jesse Stanhard's new band. Where do you see Stop and Think? He went and saw them in the States somewhere, oh, weird. and I don't remember why exactly, but yeah, he You're probably ran the American Nightmare. Yeah, he and uh, I can't remember where he saw American Nightmare either, but he, that re- that like sort of turned around because yeah, American Nightmare didn't come up. With the demo that came up when they had that first seven inch and they did that tour where they did three hundred press. Yeah. Or whatever, or like a blue vinyl version or whatever. Um but that that summer, fuck Jonah quickly morphs into career suicide when Martin quits, right? Well see, I think you you might have the the story better. So the like the origin of career suicide for me is that Fuck Jonah was started playing shows and then they Change their name to Career Suicide. No, Martin had gone, and Noah Gadke, future yeah. member of Career Suicide, one of the only holdovers from this lineup. Yeah, and Chris McCann. Moved to vocals. Yeah. Chris McCann. Whose brother was in Guided by Voices, and Chris McCann is in the Pow Wows now. Yeah, he played on uh, guitar. Yeah, and Mark also played guitar. Mark Pesci. And Mark Jarrett played drums. Drums. From Teen Crud. And no, this. Eric Smith played drums. Oh, Eric Smith, but also Mark Jarrett played drums in Career Suicide later on. No, but he played drums in like an early Fuck Jonah, early Career Suicide thing as well. Okay, well, maybe no, you guys, you guys played a show at Who's Am I? Remember you put watermelon on them and stuff? He just got up and left in the middle of the set. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Oh, uh, but this was no, because it was Eric. Because then what happens is somehow you and Martin come back and just. Slip your way into Career Suicide. Well, yeah, I guess they'd existed. They played one show with that band, United Supervillains. Yeah, I, I was at, at that the, show. At the Elma Combo. And the real Career Suicide. The real show. Career Suicide show, the real first show. The real only show for yeah, the, Career Suicide. Yeah, exactly. For the scabs. Yeah, then then there was like a sort of coup, staged a coup. <laughs> yes. I just remember getting a call one Sunday morning from Martin, who was going to go jam with the drummer, Eric. At the at Cactus, which was which was fifty meters from my front door. I guess we never talked about Cactus on this podcast at all, but that is a okay. Yeah, we can we do got it done a little. That's bit. that's its own episode. I think you should you know what you should even, you should interview Steve. No, I shouldn't. Okay, don't. No, I'm pretty pretty happy with the way. But like Cactus Studios was a rehearsal place that was a, in an old stained glass factory, and a lot of unsavory and illegal stuff happened in there, and. Yeah. While we were there, three people were murdered. Yes. The the first time I ever went there, which was to do 
This is, here's a cool tidbit for Turned Out of Punk. It was I was asked to be in a band with Steve Perry on vocals, <laughs> Chris Callahan on drums, oh. Martin on bass, and me on guitar. And Steve wanted to call it Liberace. And Chris wanted to call it the Ice Cream Men and dress up like Ice Cream Men. <laughs> and it was. I like, think the, too bad the weirdo's name was taken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then here's here's your here's your like holy grail of dog poo is that I have a four track recording that I made of the Liberace practice. How have I not heard this joke? Yeah, now? it's it's in a drawer in my parents' house Let's somewhere. Let's go find it. But you need a four track recorder. Well, I'll rent one to get the thing. I'll rent one. And. Uh, Anyway, so the first time I went to Cactus, I went to go pee, and the guy that ran the place at that time, I can't remember what he looked like, he had like a pencil mustache and sort of receding hairline, had a Ziploc bag that could hold, you know, like a watermelon or something full of cocaine, and I... (laughs) followed me into the bathroom stall where I was trying to go pee and he's like are we doing this and I was like I just have to pee man <laughs> are we doing this <laughs> and he's like this isn't cool and I'm like never mind and I like pushed my way out uh, it was awful <laughs> anyway, well, we kept going back anyway so yeah we I, I went to this practice and uh, and there was no guitar player and I started playing I Hate Music by The Mad what were you supposed to play I don't know. I was just playing guitar that day, okay. and and uh, I was I I was really into Killed by Death, and I was really into the Angry Samoans, and I was really into the Germs, and I was just playing all Germs, Angry Samoans, and like every song off of Killed by Death one, which I just sort of like learned from listening, and Eric knew all those songs too, and then Eric just said, "Okay, you got to be in the band," and I was like, "What band?" He's like. Career suicide. You're in the band, and that was I was just in, and I started practicing with them. That was like 2001 or something. So it was you, Noah, Mar- Gacky. me, Noah, Martin, and, and Eric. Yeah, Noah moved to bass. Yeah, and that lineup uh, is that actually the one that recorded on the seven inch or no? Uh, no. So like uh, the, the again, like the dates are all screwy with with career suicide. Oh, the LPs first. Yeah, we recorded the demo in Eric's house on on Humewood, uh, up at like Saint Clair and and uh Vaughn and uh that was that was Eric knowing me and Martin and then we went into Audio Lab Studios and we recorded the album which would become the Ugly Pop LP right with, across the street from Cactus Studios right, right across from Cactus Studios and and right down the road from Sheebie-Jeebies and it's like kind of that that studio for this era of punk that we're talking about yeah and that we, was our Dawn Fury yeah Eric Eric found that place and Chris Heggie Used to do sound at the Elma Combo too, and he did, he did recorded like everyone from like Brutal Nights, Brutal to Nights, like, Fucked Up, Career Suicide, Endless Blockade, uh, Sailboats Are White, No Time Left from yeah. Buffalo, yeah, like a bunch of yeah, those bands started bands. coming in to get recorded by, yeah, the exactly, oh, yeah, this is nuts. Uh, but then, so that record, also uh, fellow punk historian Stuart Schrader of the very great Shitfy blog was. Hanging out on the whole recording session for the first LP. Really? Yeah, he was, was just in Toronto? He was just in town visiting Simon, and he was there, and he sang backups. I'm pretty sure on our Chronic Sick cover because <laughs> he was a local New Jersey guy. He used to do Game of the Arseholes, a zine that's come up in here many a time. Oh yeah, that's a good zine. Great zine, one of my favorite. Yeah, I, re- I like his style a lot. Um, anyway, so that record was like never properly didn't come out very quickly it was sort of delayed I can't remember it was like delayed with pressing or delayed with printing or delayed with mixing or the test presses were there bad there was a or... test press that went with you guys to Europe that's oh yeah the first first pressing is a completely different sounding record yeah it's, it's really tinny and the bass is 
with all due respect, Noah, if you tune into the show, is terrible. <laughs> He's a good bass player otherwise now. I think. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, maybe I played not. in bands with him afterwards. Yeah. No, Noah basically just had, like, hammers for hands yeah. back then. And in uh, some songs he would, you know, it, it worked perfectly because it was just, like, this useless band. But uh, uh, that we went on a, a European tour as, like... <laughs> Our our first ever tour, our first show outside of Toronto, let, let alone, you know, outside of the basement was, you know, f- 14 days in Europe on the strength of a demo tape. Uh, and then we brought this LP with us. After the LP was recorded, we went into the studio again and recorded a 7-inch. The seven, didn't the 7-inch come out in time for that European tour? Didn't did, Hank have that with you? Yeah, he did. So technically the 7-inch the came out first, and Hank from Kangaroo Records, who heard our demo because Martin had dropped it off at Independent Outlet yeah, in Amsterdam yeah. on a trip to visit his uh, grandmother in Hungary. And uh, also visit Boris. And to visit Boris, yeah. I think Boris was living in Amsterdam at then, right? Yeah. Um, Boris, for those of you listening, is credited as playing bass on the SARS EP. Yeah, he's, and he's, he's holding a spatula. <laughs> he's got duct. No, Martin's got duct tape. All over Martin his face. has like a duct tape Hitler mustache and uh, some very poor choices. Man. Yeah, it's like r- ridiculously bad. But uh, but that's right. That Boris never actually played on the record. No, and but interestingly enough, he is a highly respected and highly skilled violin player. The fucked up has collaborated since. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, more than once he was on Year of the Ox and uh, we did the live thing the, the CBC, the CBC thing with him and yeah uh, anyway uh, the first the first single came out in time for us to go to Europe and that had Chris Callahan on drums because we had no drummer oh I, yeah I, Eric I, quit I, to move away Eric to... quit and became uh, his wife had a job publishing in Vancouver and Eric what got the job which he quotes as like his most hated or something he was listening to wiretaps for the RCMP on mobsters that were snitching on other mobsters or something like that it was like insane job maybe I can't even say that who can say <laughs> well we didn't say <laughs> who we didn't, we yeah exactly uh, yeah first single came out and then SARS came out after that and then finally the red LP was released with a new mix yeah, with and a new, new bass, bass track. track you guys went and re-recorded for it yeah I re-recorded the bass track with uh, I read in some old zine that Bobby Steele used an MXR Distortion Plus with a Gibson Marauder guitar through an Ampeg V4 so I, I actually had a Marauder but and I've, I, I bought it on that first European tour uh, but uh, I used that exact setup to try and play the bass because I thought it would sound like '70s Misfits. Yeah, it just sounds like you know, a, like a '90s tech era technology recording studio <laughs> playing like throwback music <laughs> from the '80s in the 21st century. So I don't know. Yeah, well, that's the way it unfortunately always goes with a lot of those attempts to make it something sound old. Yeah, yeah, big time. So you guys kind of get back from there. But fucked up. You were already in fucked up by this point, right? But yeah. First European tour. How did that happen? How did Mike? Oh. You were. This is before I'm in the band. I don't even, like these are. Yeah, actually, I have a really funny memory. Uh, so I can't remember. I guess career suicide and fucked up formed like really close together. Fucked up was like March of 2001, I think, or March yeah. of 2002, something like that. And uh, I went to see. Nine Shocks Terror downstairs at the Elma Combo. Uh, and I saw Mike there, 
and we were talking and I, I had bought some record and maybe we were talking about this some record or whatever. And we were both talking about no justice and genetic control. And he's like, oh, I'm going to do a band that sounds like urban waste, no justice, genetic control, and agnostic front. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, whatever. And then we didn't really talk much more that night. Uh, and I got an email from him a few days later that wasn't like, hey, man, like good talking to you the other day. It's cool that you're like into those bands. What, we 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 talked already, and I think he'd like we'd done a tape trade or something. Well, he'd already, like, he was one of the guys picking up as one. Yeah, Mike was like scare tactic. totally behind Career Suicide and as one, and Scare Tactic. He thought it was cool and had nice things to say about us. It was, it was great, which felt good because he he can be like a hard nut to crack. So it was, it was a nice thing. Um, and then I got this email from him that said, not like, do you know how to play drums or do you want to be in a band, but it was do you have access to a drum kit? Question mark. And I was like, that's funny. I don't remember asking Mike if I could play a show or anything. Uh, so I, I, I said, yeah, I do, which was not true. <laughs> and he says, do you know how to play them? And I said, oh, totally, which was also not true. And uh, he's like, okay, well, we're going to do this band. Here's, like I said, blah, blah, blah. We're going to practice. It's like me and Josh and, and Sandy from Mods and Rockers or whatever. See, that's weird because like, at the same time, Mike, Josh, Blake from They Live and Tear It Up. Oh, yeah, he was in town a ton. Right? Yeah, yeah. We lived in Toronto for a while. We lived yeah. with Mike and Lisa and them. Uh, and Chris Collin and Josh and I were going to form this band where Josh and I were going to be dual lead singers. Oh, my God. And Blake was on... No, Chris Collin was on drums. I don't know what Blake was doing there. Blake was a drummer. But I think he was he playing played bass. bass. I think he was playing bass on that one, and Mike was a guitar player. And that was kind of, remember, the same time as Fucked Up, and then all of a sudden Fucked Up became, like, kind of a real band. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, we, we went and had these practices, and, the, I mean, the songs were kind of good right away. And I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I And I also, this is, like, my most popular folklore, maybe, with people that have known me for a long time, is that I, I like to, it's like, I sort of have trouble admitting things right away, and I didn't want to tell my parents that I was going to go be in this hardcore band hardcore punk band with people they'd never met and didn't know and so I would just create these like elaborate ruses for the first however many years of the band like years and years and so I remember the first fucked up practice oh this is coming back I, had, I used to have this like ridiculous polo shirt that was looked like something that Chandler from Friends would wear and I was like a much heavier guy back then and so it was this really baggy black polo with red and white stripes like down the middle, <laughs> kind of like Guy Fieri meets Chandler. <laughs> and uh, I wore these like maybe white trousers and I told my parents I was going to go to the Insomnia Cafe on Bloor <laughs> Street to meet a friend or whatever. And I hid my drumsticks <laughs> in my like belt, in like the belt line of my pants. And then I was supposed to be there at like six o'clock or whatever. And I was, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go now. And uh, I, like, got on the bus so that it would, like, appear. Because <laughs> the practice things around the corner. Yes. <laughs> so I, like, waited for the bus across the street in the direction that it was going. And my parents were like, okay, see you later. I was like, yep, yeah, bye. And got off one stop later and sprinted around the block to the uh, to the practice space and showed up. And I had to be, like, I was so nervous because I actually didn't know how to play drums and I didn't know these people at all. So I was, like, I kind of remember trying to be Mr. Personality and, like, doing dumb funny stuff like 
jumping while playing drums. But it all kind of gelled pretty fast, I have yeah. to say. And we, we wrote, like, there was the first song Fucked Up ever wrote in that incarnation, I think it was called Sirens. I can still kind of vaguely remember the riff. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, we played our first show, opening for Crispus A Tux. Nope. No. Cost was the first show, that weird Alex McDonald party with some friends of hers from Halifax. Was that really? That was like the second show. I think that was before I, Christmas Talks, right? No, I'm almost positive. The, the first show was Christmas at Talks at Planet Kensington, and we covered Remind Them by Agnostic Front and Nervous Breakdown by Black Flag, and you were in the front row. And I choked Sam Josh. And you choked Sam Josh. Just kicked me in the nuts. He kicked you in the nuts. And, uh, and that night as well, it was the night before my final exam of high school, and so I obviously couldn't didn't have the, the didn't have the, the 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 guts to tell my parents that I was going to go play a <laughs> punk band show with my punk band instead of studying for my exam. So I just packed a book bag and hid some drumsticks in there and said I was going to the Robarts Library to study. And they were like, "Well, why are you going to go there?" I was like, "I just need some space, you know. I just really need like the piece." And they're like, "Okay, can we give you a lift?" I was like, "No, no, I don't think so." They're like, "Well, we'll give you a ride." I'm like, "Okay." So I went to Robarts. Drove me to Robarts Library. And uh, I went into the stacks, and I, I did study for like two hours, and then. It, but I was like too excited about this show, and like walked to Kensington Market, and they just had hours to fucking kill wandering around Kensington. And then we we played this show. I got home after a hard day of studying at midnight, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I wrote this finished high school the next day, and. What was the time we were away? First day of the rest of my life kind of thing. <laughs> there was a way the time we were away on a tour. I think it was on our first tour. And you told your parents that you were at a cottage. And you had, like, there was something where you were late and you had to stay. Like, oh, I'm staying an extra day at the cottage. Oh, yeah. I mean, that sounds so likely. <laughs> it's like, of, of all the things, you know, like, you're like, yeah, I'm just going to go do this thing. I'm going to play this music. Uh, and I had to come up with some elaborate excuse that's probably why the hardest working member of this band to this day because you've always had to work to be in this band <laughs> because I have to maintain cover <laughs> just constantly I'm like Donnie Brasco I'm in too deep now <laughs> you're in way too deep Jonah. everybody's like just come back you're, you're there's like a whole team of people they're like okay you're at Robarts you're reading about like you know <laughs> picture of Dorian Gray and the shipping news or whatever it's, isn't it portrait of Dorian Gray you can tell how hard I studied. <laughs> you have been so I was born for the road, baby. <laughs> what was that weird show you guys played at Cost? Cost, which is a yeah, it was, establishment. Cost is now called like Nirvana, I think, or oh, I don't know. But uh, that show was. I think it's still called Cost, no? No, it's not. The Cost is in Kensington Market now. It's, it's oh, called yeah. something else, and it's been refurbished. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. It was like maybe this the, the new breed from Halifax or like some kind of indie band. Our, our longtime friend Alex McDonald, who is a. And she somehow managed to put this show together. It wasn't really her thing to put together gigs, but no. she, she was at every show. and She had a couple shows. It was like always her friends' bands from Halifax. She went to school a bit. But yeah. She did these shows, and it was like, I remember that I guess, one being I guess super I, weird, but I think it was a scare tactic, okay. career suicide, and fucked up. Yeah, you're right. That was the, the first, was <laughs> all three. That's crazy, too, because, I mean, like, bless Alex for giving it a shot. <laughs> like, it must have been awful. I don't remember anything about that show other than that it, that it definitely happened. Uh, but I this, remember here's a, this is again like if, if, if 
I realize this is all over the place, but you're getting like a funny geography of the old crappy venues in Toronto, like Koss. Koss was just like a gross diner. <laughs> it's a diner. It's a disgusting like little diner that had. It's still open, Joe. Let's go easy on it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So <sorry. laughs> it wasn't that bad. It was gross back then, and like. It wasn't a venue. It was just a giant dining room, and they moved some tables, and you could play in like the back dining and they, room. And they had eventually, like a step they, stage. eventually, they yeah. built a stage. And actually, I feel like Career Suicide played a, a great show. Yeah, there. you guys with Vile Minds. Yeah, with Vile Minds. Knife Fight. Oh man, yeah. no, mental. No, that was Mental Knife Fight, Violent Minds. Career Suicide show was like something, something else. No, Career Suicide did play. We we definitely Violent Minds too. I think right. Oh, we we know Career Suicide. Another played, Violent Minds. We have played with Violent Minds before, but I can't remember when. Might have been at a Cuba. I saw you guys there, and that was one of the best times I ever saw Career Suicide. Yeah, I, I remember you like paying yeah. paying a nice compliment. Yeah, I, I did it. I really appreciated it. Uh, we had a, we covered the kids. I think at that show we yeah. covered like uh, Do You Love the Nazis? I could have sworn that was the one where you might be right. No one or Violent Minds found that dude that looked kind of like Ozzy Osbourne, and they did Sweet Leaf. Yeah, with that but guy. That wasn't that show. Because I, I, I know that, that, I, that we definitely didn't play that show. I don't think Bob Mines played that Mental Knife Fight show, though. No, they didn't. No, you're right. It was Mental Knife Fight and Life's Halt or something. No. No. Maybe it was Career Suicide. I don't know. Um, but uh, Career Suicide definitely played the show. Full Career Suicide mental show. Oh, yeah. So that was an amazing show. <laughs> So, uh, and again, like... <laughs> really early on, too. Really early days, but, like, if this show happened now, I feel like it would be really big. And, I, oh, and, yeah. I, and like, uh, so it was... If this show Tear It Up, headlining. Be, yeah. Mental, Think I Care, Fucked Up, no, no, it was, Career Suicide. The, the bill was, the tour that was booked... Yeah. ...was uh, Think I Care opening for Tear It Up. Yeah. Mental had just jumped on oh, yeah. a bunch of the shows on that tour. Right, right, right. Including the show in Toronto. Right. So, so Crew Suicide fucked up. Mental, Think I Care, Tear It Up. Yeah. That's a pretty good show for the early 2000s. That's like going to be. And of course, Toronto, it's like dead as a fucking doornail. None of those. I think Think I Care was kind of at their like peakish. Musically, uh, yeah. Yeah, musically, like, uh, and all, but t- popularity wise, Tear It Up was kind of on a bit of the decline. Like, yeah, they were on a later record. Yeah, and yeah. Like, and and it was before anyone cared about mental at all. Mental. Career Suicide and Fucked Up were just local jokes. Yeah. And, and mental, I remember I got the mental demo at that show. Me too. Talking to DFJ at the bar. Like after our set, and okay. Anyway, the context of this show is basically that like I can't exactly. Somebody in Career Suicide was late. We were supposed to play first. We were supposed to play first, which made sense because we were like a local band. I know. I know what happened was you guys were supposed to play first, but then Mental jumped on, and Mike's like, "Oh, you guys got to play first because Career Suicide's not even here yet." Oh, yeah. And then Greg was like, I don't want to play because I want to wait till my friends from No Warning get here before we play. Yeah. And Mike's like, too bad, you got to play. So Mental played one of the most bitter sets I've ever seen a band do but, in my life. Yeah, they were just like, yo, fuck, fuck the suicide party. <laughs> but actually, like, it sucked because I, I was like, I, I, you know, I knew that they drove from, like, Boston to play. And you know me, I'm like Captain Meek over here. I'm just like, yo, we... We'll play, just like delay the show, 
and uh, Noah was late or Martin was late. They were coming straight from work or something. And, you know, Mental went on first and I was like, man, I just, kn- I know that no matter what happens, like Chris was at, at this point especially, was very untight. Yeah, and Mental right. goes on and they're like, they had the power of anger on their side, you know, you know, like <laughs> punk, hardcore is supposed to be like angry energy release music. Mental was like, we just fucking drove like 12 hours to get here and we're playing first for like six people and our friends aren't even here yet. This sucks. They were so good. And like Greg Mental looked like he was like bouncing off the walls. It was awesome. And uh, and then we went up there and it was just like such a fucking train wreck, in yeah. my opinion, because I got I was like all nerves. But fucked up got it after Crew Suicide. Yeah. And it was okay. Yeah, it was good. Because Crew Suicide had set the stage. We yeah, didn't exactly. go down mental room. Yeah, it was, it was like mental good, <laughs> Crew Suicide, shambolic, <laughs> fucked up, not bad. And then Think I Care. Did their thing. They were awesome. Killer. It was the day after they had that beef with that band, Something in the Water. Oh, man. And they were talking about it on stage, and it's like, nobody Toronto's a little backwater. Yeah. Everybody's like, what do you mean there's something in the water, eh? Yeah, there's like four of us that kind of got what was going on. Norwalk? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and I remember tearing up at that show, Andy, who we recently reconvened with on the Descendants tour. His guitar malfunctioned. Two or three times, and uh, like any rational person would, r- any rational person would, he fastball pitched his guitar at the wall and <laughs> smashed it into like two pieces, <laughs> rendering his guitar pretty much inoperable for the rest of it, the night. Uh, those were the good times. Well, yeah. Jonah, I think we filled this one out a little bit more. Yeah, we did it. We, you got your extra hour. It's two in the morning now, or more, and... Uh, oh, I gotta go have a bath. Damien's gonna head in the bath. My night's just beginning. This is my I'm gonna pass post, out a, post-show ritual. There's uh, some trashy British television on uh, Channel One. Kate Nash is in this. I'm trying to figure out which actress is Kate Nash. It's uh, on the credits while playing in the background. Hey, well, maybe that's for your listeners to guess. Yes, <laughs> we were on. Name that show. You, Silent and you can't see it. You too can win membership in uh, Career Suicide. That's <laughs> really all it takes to be a bass player in this hey, day. We're going to have you back for a part two, buddy. I hope you know. Oh, really? And eventually. And when okay. we do a part two, I want it just to be dissecting the various lineups of Career Suicide. I will lose so many friends. <laughs> I, well, I don't think we have to, crit- we have to be harshly critiquing the oh, no. human beings. Once I'm in the We're safety like, okay. of like a... <laughs> we can do that. We can do that. No, no. Career Suicide. We're not going to go to the people. No. But there's, there's Career Suicide, MK1, with none of you. Gunshot? Was that a gunshot? Or a toilet backing up? I don't know. Anyway. You, you know this area better than I. A toilet sh- doesn't backing up doesn't sound like Braca. Might sound like that. <laughs> okay, go on. Okay, so it's MK1, which is none of you guys. Yeah. Right, and then uh, Eric and Noah go on into MK2. Yeah. And then MK3 is when Callahan leaves. Uh, sorry. Uh, MK2.5 is Callahan on drums. But that recorded. All oh, right. Okay, so Eric leaves. Yeah. 2.5 is Callahan on drums. Yeah. And then what's the European lineup? Like, who played bass when you went first into Europe? Oh, Gabby Resch. <laughs> so Gabby joined the band. So Gabby, had, Gabby moved to Amsterdam to work in a paper mill or something or just to get away from it and all. And Martin had just randomly met Gabby somewhere else in Canada, right? Well, Gabby and Martin were like good buddies in Vancouver. They were, oh, they were, yeah, they, they were good friends from, from being out in Vancouver together. Uh, and then Mark III was... Jesse on drums and Bennett on bass. Yep. And then Mark, Mark, 
four was Miller. Enter the oh, Miller. Miller. Enter the Miller. No, no, wait. We're forgetting about we're getting Mike Halichuk. Was it when Mike oh, Halichuk? Mike, Mike played one show with us. Oh, he played a couple shows with us on bass, <laughs> yeah. actually, and he went to Japan with us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's in there for sure. And but the, the, Does the he most, record anything? He never recorded anything. Legendarily. And Mike's a good bass player. So the, and actually, the, Jap- the Japan lineup, Mark, whatever that was, was like our best. It, that was the best it's been. And like right now, it's the best it's been. But back to the Mark Hurst from Chicago. Okay, we're skipping ahead. Yeah, okay. Okay, Jesse Bennett, Miller, Jesse, Jesse leaves, Mark and Halichuk go to Japan. Mark Hurst. Mark Hurst from Punch Punch in the the Face face wound up and booking shows in Chicago. Go to Japan. We get back. Jesse's still on drums. Mike plays a few more shows with us on bass. Uh, And then. Uh, Mike leaves Miller full time and eventually Jesse leaves and we get Dave Brown yep. on drums and that takes us up to oh and then uh, when Dave Brown was first starting on drums we had already committed ourselves to having Brandon Farrell from yep. uh, Municipal Waste and, and Direct Control and Government Warning play drums on the album and he did a tour with you guys before that right? Uh, he show. did a tour with us on second guitar and we played one show with him on drums and we later played one show with him on drums a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so Jesse or Dave Brown and Miller was like the longest lasting lineup. Uh, Miller left the band mm-hmm. to move back to Winnipeg uh, or move move out to Ottawa. He got married, had a couple kids. Drives an eighteen wheeler now, hauling hauling beans across the border, and uh, being a being a great guy, and. And John Sharon from Brutal Nights and Union of Uranus and every other million. Chokehold. Chokehold, every <laughs> other band. We still make fun of him for that to this day. Uh, uh, he gets in on bass. Dave Brown, no longer in the band. And uh, we get Ian Romano. Mm-hmm. And, uh, from Attack in Black. From Attack in Black and Daniel Romano's band. And then Dallas Good. Joins the band on second guitar. Mercedes. And he, that was around the same time as Ian joining the band. And so now we've got like the ultimate lineup of uh, men over 40 and people who look like they're under 20. I think we're going to have, I'm going to say we're, there's going to be like 10 distinct career suicide lineups. I was asked in an interview once if, if I was your potential employer, <laughs> you're a band that has had 10 different record labels, 25 ex members. And you've been around for 15 years. I wouldn't hire you for one second. What, what 10 different record labels? Yeah, this was a, the Korean, this was the, the Korea Times in oh. Seoul asking these questions. Because I was going to say, like, they, the they only, just went from Wikipedia. Yeah, because the only, like, you guys have done one offs on other labels, but I'd say Ugly Pop and Deranged. Ugly Pop, Deranged, Slasher. Kangaroo, like one-offs, one-offs. Way back when. One-offs. But for them, I guess they were just looking they, at this yeah, list yeah, and they were true. like, what the hell is your deal? But like, I mean, like, like I act funny because I had this exact conversation with someone backstage tonight, and I can't even remember who it was, uh, about like them asking me about career suicide and deranged records. I'm like, yeah, career suicide is going to be doing records on deranged yeah. forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're indentured servants. Indentured servants. To the G-man. Still paying off the big, first tour debt. Big D. He's like, yeah, I don't know. You still owe us for those split 12 inches, <laughs> yeah. man, that you brought to Columbus of Columbus Fest or whatever. Oh, yeah. We can also go through Career Suicide. One of my favorite bands <laughs> in the history of Toronto Punk, 100%. <laughs> okay. But at the same time, a band with a lot of superfluous records. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> when he split. Oh yeah. Picture disc. Oh yeah. I I I I think about this all the time. If I could like pare down the at least number of songs. <laughs> so right now we're at like Bliarg level of <laughs> song numbers. I think like only Spaz has about the same amount of songs. You know what I mean? Uh, the new stuff sounds so good though. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, we have yes. So we can end we can end there by shamelessly self-promoting and saying that Career Suicide has a new LP coming on the aforementioned uh, <laughs> Prisoner Records. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, no, I'm just kidding, Gord. Uh, it's called Machine Response and it's uh, 11, 11 brand new songs and we are self-releasing an EP which will be out in a few months um, and it features you, actually, twice. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Finally. So now I'm now I'm MK11. That's right. You're on the list. I'm now. in the list now. It's like I never performed in any career suicide records prior. No, you hadn't, and uh, and now you have like actually like the most dramatic feature. <laughs> you like this a character in a, a very descriptive uh, old Australian punk tune about a prison riot, and then also uh, you rediscovered together that record. That was one of the best there are record, circles. That was one of the best record days. Egg records. Egg records in Brisbane. In Brisbane. It was one of the best record days ever. Yeah, it was a great record day. That was a fun... Like, sometimes you and me, when we're on tour, we get those days where we walk forever yeah. to a record store, and we always get something good to eat. We had shitty food that day, but it was still good company. On paper, killer day. Big, nice walk through town, a couple cold drinks, great stack of records, discovered this band, Mechalisa, walk back, it's happy hour for oysters at a pub. Didn't we also hang out with, like, the Swellers? Like, we met those guys, the Swellers, oh, and yeah, they went to right. walk with us, too? Yeah, that's right. Kill it, kill it. Yeah. What a fun day. What a fun day. All, All right. right. Thanks, well, Damien. Thanks, buddy. No this problem. Is, now we've uh, done it. Now yeah. we've actually done a real Jonah turn out of pump. Before it felt like kind of we were half stepping. Yeah, we were just doing going through the motions a bit. But yeah. this is a this is about as real as it gets. You can hear the covers crinkling. About to turn in. The bath yeah. is running. We're gonna turn off the light. I'm gonna kiss Diesel Boy goodnight, <laughs> and that's gonna be it. <laughs> Diesel Boy will be for part two. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jonah, for coming on the show. And Jonah will be back for a part two, I'm sure, because I'll be starved for content one day. He'll be sitting beside me in a hotel room, and I'll be like, let's do a part two. And we'll be able to get into all sorts of funny stuff on that one. You'll find out the reference of Diesel Boy, because it is hilarious. It's a funny story. But that's for next time. Speaking of next time, next time you listen to this podcast, we're going to have an amazing guest on the show in celebration of the... um, I don't know. You should see it. Tournament of Death, Bloodlust documentary over at Vice that I've done. I'm having on someone that, once you see it, you will never forget this person. Jeff Cannonball will be on the show next week. Jeff has probably the most memorable scene in the doc and also is one of these rare breeds of people that is at the same time completely terrifying and also the coolest the coolest. He's like a straight-edge vegan, hardcore kid. There's best show stuff next week. This is going to be one for the ages next week. Believe me. Believe me on that one. Uh, so we got wrestling, the best show. Not weed because he's straight-edge, but hardcore. So that's like, those are like four of my top five things that you have to have in a successful podcast next week. So that will be a fun one. Uh, did I say three things or that fourth thing? Anyway, it's so fucking late. Bill's party's finally winding down. I think I'm going to go to sleep. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, this shit's easy.
go out there and make your own culture, produce something, fanzine, podcast, band, label, do something. Because it, it makes you feel better, honestly. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I will see you next week. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned for footnotes.